saying good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another, tonight, a very special edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Tonight, we're memorializing a dear friend and colleague who left 3D about a year ago, slightly over a year ago, and uh, we're going to try to do her memory and her continuity justice, and I say that with all good intentions, because I have first-hand data that she's out there somewhere on the other side, because I've had a lot of data over the last several years since Robin unceremoniously left, so I have a feeling that <laughs> Carmen probably is going to be listening and kind of watching what every one of us is going to do, and we have some very special commemorations of her work, her character, her drive, her determination, and her mission. But before we get to any of that, uh, we have some very important news, uh, both close at home and half a world away. So let me get to that to start with. We have it. it well, see, how do I enter to this? It's happened again. Um, about a week ago, uh, the U.S. government watched as this extraordinary Chinese spy balloon drifted from sea to shining sea, and the Biden administration shot it down a few miles off uh, North Carolina, uh, and then we are in the process, I imagine, I've, I've seen news reports that we're still recovering pieces uh, in a rather large area. The U.S. Navy is doing this in about 47 feet of water, and it's been taken to Quantico and other laboratories, and there is a post-mission uh, you know, uh, mission analysis of what were the Chinese up to, and there are some some reports of antennas and surveillance and all that kind of thing. Well, two days ago, or was no, it was yesterday, another strange object, not a balloon, it was termed officially by the Pentagon an object the size of a car was shot down uh, just off the Aleutian Islands, entering into the airspace and uh, uh, 12-mile limit of Alaska. And the pieces apparently fell on ice, so they're in the process also be recovered. Well, this afternoon, hours later, over the Yukon, the Prime Minister of Canada, in an announcement and then a conversation with President Biden, announced that the Canadian Air Force, with the assistance of the United States Air Force, had shot down a third object that had drifted or appeared over Canada, over the Yukon. Now, these last two objects are not described as by balloons, surveillance balloons. They were, the one over Alaska was much lower. The balloon, as you know, was around 60,000 feet. The object of entering American airspace uh, on Saturday was at uh, 40,000 which is in the realm of where commercial airliners fly. So the Pentagon said that the reason for shooting it down was that it was interfering and potentially uh, impending and hazardous condition with commercial airline traffic, which, of course, is true. We know very little about this third object. If you click on my first item in Radio with Pictures, uh, this is a story from The Independent, 
which was updated about an hour ago to include the latest object, this appears to be a trend. Now, remember what I said um, last week, that just because something looks like a balloon, it might be another player in the UFO game showing up and pretending to be a balloon so they can do their own kind of, um, you know, camouflage surveillance. Well, it's interesting that the Pentagon now says that these two other objects are not balloons, but are in the unidentified aerial phenomenon category. Uh, we're going to get into a lot more on this tomorrow night, but uh, I wanted to lead tonight so you can kind of go to those news items, do your own search. By tomorrow, there could be more. We seem to be in some kind of a trend. I'm not quite sure what the trend is, but again, um, there are other folks prowling around our airspace than Russians and Chinese and spy balloons. So with that as a proviso, we will move on and we will again uh, catch you up on the latest as of tomorrow night's program. Item number two, there are now over 25,000 dead in the Turkey-Syrian earthquake, and it is a death toll that is among the worst in history. Uh, it is surpassing now the 2011 Japanese quake. And fortunately, we have a man on the scene, because Tim Saunders, who was one of our participants tonight, one of the panelists, who has worked with our friend Carmen, uh, she and uh, he and Kinthea worked with Carmen on her last project. Um, Tim is in Turkey. As you know, he is a nautical designer. He is also a filmographer. He is a film producer. Or is it maybe these days they call it video or whatever. Anyway, he happens to live in Turkey and so is able to report from on scene uh, what the latest there. Tim, I'm sorry to introduce you under such tragic circumstances, but what is the condition tonight? Actually, it's early morning there for you on Sunday morning in terms of current rescue efforts for those still buried under the rubble. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, the, the numbers are probably increasing sort of uh, on, on the threshold of the 30,000 now. Oh, my. And... Uh, I have to say that there's quite a large diversity between what you see on the mainstream news and what you hear from uh, sort of first-hand or second or third-hand contacts with people actually have relations. I, I'm sitting very, uh, you know, very safely on the West Coast, and this is absolutely on the complete other opposite side of the country, on the east, uh, southeast corner of Turkey. So uh, there were no seismic happenings here. And also I spent most of the week in the middle of Turkey, in the south of Turkey. I say the middle south of Turkey. And again, there were no seismic happenings there, I'm, I'm thankful to say. But, you know, along the way, a lot of people have um, connections, families, friends, and so on, people living in that part of Turkey. And uh, what I was hearing was that the, you know, the the initial seismic events were, were large. There's sort of seven plus. And I understand that that's a magnitude now. It's not necessarily uh, classified in the same way as it used to be as on the Richter scale. So maybe that's a point worth discussing at some later in the show. But they were huge. Uh, and the area 
that these uh, quakes and also multiple hundreds, I think, reporting the hundreds of aftershocks were all in the same sort of 400 millimeter, uh, 400 kilometer radius. So what's that in mathematics in, in, in feet, inches and miles? I don't know, but it's, it's a large area. Uh, in there, there were 10 cities. I mean, obviously villages and towns as well, but people speak of 10 cities. Um, four of which very, very badly damaged. And as I say, out of the 10, you know, there's a large amount of damage caused to those as well. Well, I've seen reports that there are something like 80,000 who are injured on a wide spectrum of injuries, and then another several million who are homeless, who are displaced, <clears throat> who have no buildings, no apartments, no houses, because they've collapsed. And there's a mounting furor in the Turkish government regarding building standards, and apparently they've turned off the internet so that people, citizens, can't complain about the government's slow response. I, I think that the, the social media has been, uh, should we say, selectively switched off uh, in order to yeah, quieten down the people or just let, um, or perhaps even hide information as well. Obviously, it's a two sided knife. Um, but in the beginning, social media was being used to actually track people and find people, uh, trapped in the rubble. Imagine that there's just a sea of rubble and perhaps those, some of those people who were running in the middle of the night to, to save their lives, maybe they just grab one thing and that was their telephone. And of course the telephone maybe have limited battery power. Uh, and that's the other thing as well. It's very cold in that corner of uh, Turkey. Oh my. And this event that happened in the middle, I think it was like 4 a.m. or something like that when it originally kicked off. So there's a limited amount of time that people can wouldn't survive in such cold conditions. But despite that, you know, even small kids were being pulled out. I you know, saw re reports literally this evening that they were still rescuing people and families and children, and it's been a week. Well, yes, that that's, that's the amazing thing about the human... Uh, the human body, it can obviously withstand incredible... Well, given what Carmen threshold. was into and given what we're going to talk about for the rest of the morning, I'm wondering if world global consciousness attention for the well-being of these victims is somehow enhancing their survivability. Well, I would not rule it out, Richard. Uh, well, when you I exceed the normal limits and you get into the realm of miracles... And there's not one or two, but there's dozens and dozens. You begin to see a trend curve. Well, yes, you can select information and create curves in all different directions. But yes, I am saying that there is a possibility. I would not rule it out. But I mean, I think also that the uh, one of the sort of positive attributes of, of Turkish uh, culture is they very quickly do pull together uh, and to help one another. So there have been huge efforts of people grouping together and you know, not even close by because a lot of people were not even allowed to go there. I know people that, um, I say I know, I know of people, one person removed, uh, who had even had specialist drones with sort of uh, the ability to seek uh, temperature differences and so on. And uh, he had family there and he was gain, trying to gain permission to go there and he was banned. He said, no, stay out of it. A lot of people wants to go and help. They were asked to not go. And the reason was given that they may not be trained. They may not be, uh, they may cause more problems than actually 
the help they hope to give because they may be blocking the road or they may have themselves become entrapped or, and so on and so on. But one of the big questions to go back to one of your earlier points is the army were not initially let in the area, which is very surprising at this stage. And that seems to be one of the decisions that the people don't necessarily agree with uh, the government's decision. Well, I heard there was a special earthquake fund set up for exactly this contingency, and I saw several reports, independent, and that it was funded literally, you're not going to believe this, to the tune of five U.S. dollars. I kid you not. Five. So someone, government-wise, drained that fund so there was no funds for rescue after you know national disasters like an earthquake. I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised the citizens of Turkey are, shall we say, asking very hard questions. Let me, let me make one more transition, and then we'll go to our subject of the evening, which, of course, you are intimately uh, uh, you know, aware of and a relationship with, with our friend Carmen. <clears throat> On my item number three, uh, <clears throat> there have been a lot of speculations this week as to this earthquake, actually a double earthquake, the first was a 7.8. The second was a 7.4, which is kind of, you know, in the similar range. Enormously energetic, enormously destructive. There were swirls in, in uh, social media that this was a directed harp strike by the U.S. government, which, of course, is absurd. Why would we be attacking Turkey with hyperdimensional weaponry? Makes no sense. However, this same week, there was a massive event on the sun, a literal polar vortex extending from 55 degrees uh, latitude uh, across the pole that erupted uh, at the middle of the week, uh, optically a couple of days after the earthquake. And I'll get to why this might be relevant momentarily. And it rotated in a vortex pattern around the north pole of the sun in eight hours at the equivalent velocity of 60 miles per second. Never before seen. Totally unknown. My model, as you know, is a hyperdimensional model, which is the sun and the solar system are connected at levels in the ether that we don't normally track and see that are non-electromagnetic. We have many examples <clears throat> of events happening on Earth and happening in the sun that were preceded by awareness of events so that it appeared to, quote, trickle down into the 3D electromagnetic realm. It is not beyond the realm of science, a future science that we'll get into in much more detail tomorrow night, that if we understood and made public the scientists' understandings of the hyperdimensional physics realm, we could develop a, a warning system, a network, which could be triggered by these hyperdimensional events that then manifest in 3D hours or days later, and people in dangerous areas, which are earthquake-prone, like Turkey, like northern Syria, could in fact be warned, and they could evacuate, just like we evacuate people now uh, in, 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 the, in the face of uh, hurricanes. And it wouldn't be a false alarm. It would be based on real, if rather extraordinary, science. And we could save countless lives, again, by opening the black ops people's 
vaults and libraries and records and science and making it available to Earth's civilian population. And that was one of the things that uh, Carmen's legacy was devoted to, exploring the domain and the encompassment of ancient science and the whole idea that we are maybe not the first, that we are a subsequent legacy civilization from a much higher level of human consciousness and productivity and scientific accomplishment and understanding, which in part has been lost <clears throat> and in part has been suppressed. And she was on the other side of midnight many times, at least three times, and Kinthea has nicely posted as items four, five, and six links to other appearances that Carmen made on the other side of midnight where we had many, many hours of extraordinary discussion into her vast and very multidisciplinary background and interests and her research, which came to the fore in a television documentary series called The Pyramid Code, which is available online, and you just have to Google The Pyramid Code. Uh, there's a link there to the Amazon, um, I think they're DVDs, uh, which are available. It was produced and directed by Carmen. She spent many years doing this. And in fact, um, there is a, a, a soundbite I want to play that really, in her own words, encompasses what the Pyramid Code uh, summed up of her extraordinary investigations into the real ancient Egypt. I believe, Keith, you have that clip. We're having a bit of a technical difficulty here. Bear with us. I'm not hearing anything. Initially, in the ceremony of the weighing of the hearts, the deceased would meet Anubis, who would say, you're dead. Let's have your heart. We're going to weigh it against the feather of truth. If your heart was heavy because you had done something immoral, you weren't allowed to go to the other side. So the populace learned that they had to be light of heart in order to live well. The Amun priesthood had a lot of power, and they were in a position to have people pay for their salvation. It used to be that your heart was weighed against the feather of truth. But in later pictures of the ceremony of the weighing of the heart, you'll see Horus holding onto the scale. And you could pay the priesthood for Shakti dolls. And the more of them you had, the more likelihood you could buy the lightness of heart instead of being light of heart. Wow. Fundamental change in terms of how to live well. And I think that we still are living in that way. Wow. Profound, Timothy. Profound. Yeah, that, that's just one little excerpt. I, I've spent some time again watching that series this week. And, yeah, it uh, almost sounds to me, remember I was raised a Catholic, 
there, there used to be what they call dispensations. And at some point, by, you know, an offering or basically a bribe, you could buy dispensations from the church, which in older eras were freely given if you were repentant. I mean, it looks like humans keep re replicating the same stupid petrics over and over again. There, absolutely. Uh, but if, again, if you follow the, the series, it, it does, and let's go back, it, it, it was created, I think, uh, first broadcast around 2009, I believe. And while some of the HD quality and so on dates a little, I mean, you know, clearly technology has moved on, but pretty sure Carmen shot it in the best way possible at the time. But the story that the words, the way it, it was written and the way it flows, that stays, uh, it remains a very, very watchable series and very informative series as well with all sorts of characters, um, some of which are not here anymore. For example, John Anthony West, and so on. Uh, but they're all making profound comments that actually really undermine the whole way that we, we look at society today. I think that you know, at this time, Carmen was highlighting a far more sort of pure, honest way of living. And uh, you know, e even, even in the ancient culture's way of describing the word death, there was no word for death. Uh, the actual term comes from uh, westing, going west as the sun sets. I believe there was a, a ceremony uh, at the end of people's physical life where they would, uh, certainly the pharaohs at least, I believe, were put into a boat and they would cross the Nile and they would uh, be taken across the Nile in the westerly direction, sunset. Well, that's why the pyramids were built on the west bank of the Nile, up and down the entire Nile Valley. Could be, could well be, but uh, that's if they were thinking they were tombs. But I think they were far more than that. Well, the idea. Well, right. Um, that's a long discussion for the rest of the morning. Uh, you and Kintia were deeply involved in Carmen's last film project. It turned out, unfortunately, which was going to be called the New Atlantis. I believe she shot uh, uncounted hours with again people like John, who are no longer with us. And she was on. She produced a lot of the program. Um, Kintia, you had some people in terms of her memorial on the web that had some amazing things to say about both Carmen's life, her research, and her other projects. Well, I, I do have some things that I wanted to share about her humanity, and I think we'll segue back to Timothy about the project. Um, I met, you know, Carmen first had an impact on my life when I was a young woman, and she wrote this book that came out in uh, March of uh, 1997, Angels and Archetypes, an Evolutionary Map of the Feminine, and she was a trailblazer. She was a very complex and multi-layered being. I you know, I didn't know her at that time, and my first introduction to her was working with you, Richard, and putting together the shows, and she was always so professional and highly detailed and um, careful about her work. She was very careful about her work, and I had a chance to get to know her better when Timothy and I were uh, exploring the New Atlantis Project with her. 
So I, I really wanted to touch upon the humanity of who she was. She, she passed on when she was 67 years young. She had great vitality. Uh, at that time, she was living in Spain, and she loved riding her young white stallion. Really beautiful <laughs> horse. <laughs> mythical, very and, mythical. Yeah, yeah. A mythical lady, too. And uh, conversations with her would range in broad-spectrum conversations. And I went to the site where there's a memorial site for her, and I was touched by some of the comments because they really lend a flavor as to who she was as a being. So this first one is so in keeping with what we just heard, which is, you know, something here. She's talking about Westing, and she has now Wested. Uh, so I'm going to share this comment. This is from Bettina Forstner. One year in the other world. How I wish you would just send a long letter to us all telling us <laughs> how it is. What are you up to? Yes, our loss is big, but Otherworld has won you to work on the vibrations so needed. And I know the great overview is key, where all senses have no limits. Thinking of you, I get the same text over and over again. As light as a feather, effortlessly with great care and compassion. This is how you'd go about things in this world or in another. As much as it hurts to remember your departure that day for your cosmic vacation, knowing that you're added to the great minds of other world beings is ease on my mind. Hearts alchemy is the bridge i love that passage that was by bettina and here's another comment from alana ryan in 2017 i went to dr carmen bolter's annual spring magic egypt tour one of the cool things about carmen was that she incorporated the wisdom she received from her intuition and past life memories into her talks Instead of going through main entrances, entrances or most popular tombs and temples, she would take us around the back through that, which was not really on display. We walked through a mango grove in the ruins of Abu Ghraib and the quartz crystal formation. Carmen encouraged us to tone as we stood in a circle with our hands on the altar. So she really enjoyed uh, toning. That's making sounds. Some of some of you already know that. And uh, here's a comment that really touched me. This is by Marla Hedman. Drove by your house in Victoria the other day. Always remember the cute little house in Sunnyside Hillhurst, and your funky abode on the hill above Elbow River in Earlton District of Calgary. She was from Canada, by the way. Great meals and lots of laughs, many candles lit, great music always playing. And here's from Jennifer Cox. Carmen, I just went to leave a message, a birthday message for you, and realized it's been a while since we spoke. 
I googled your name to find this. That's the obituary site. Oh, Carmen, my heart shattered. You were so good to me when I was a child. You were like a second mom. I forever will think about you and Galen. That was her son who passed away. I always hoped one day I'd see you again. Look for me in my next life. I know you'll find me. And that's really how I found out about Carmen. I wanted to get in touch with her again because it had been a while, and I was shocked to find out she had passed. And here's another great comment by Bettina. Ah, that day when veils are thin and many hugs and spirit and laughters and dreams are on, we are unfold, we all unfold our spirit wings, these few nights to go visit and rejoice again, remembering our endless giggles and laughters on so many occasions and our almost daily rainbow letters, answering in yet another color, Egypt was each time so magical. And from Deb Anthony, Carmen, thinking of you today and thanks for connecting in my dreams. Flying about with veil in hand made me remember your Women with Wings workshops. So she was very powerful influence in, in uh, the divine feminist movement, uh, the in helping women to reclaim their awareness of the divine feminine. Yeah, let, let's hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guests this morning for the first hour are Tim Saunders and Kinthea. We're having memories of Carmen and her fascinating and impactful uh, exertions in the lives of so many. When we return, I, I think Kinthea should read a few more of those because these were the people that she talked to and she connected with, and who she changed. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thank you. 
And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, the 11th of February, 2023. Gosh, one month already gone. Tonight we're remembering Carmen Bolter, who was a multifaceted, multi-talented, very aware and in-touch lady who touched so many lives, as you can tell from uh, the... Uh, memorializations that Kinthea has been reading from. I think what we're going to do is we're going to put that page at the end of my items tonight so that if you are listening to the show and you knew Carmen or knew of her work, primarily of the Pyramid Code, if not her books, uh, you can add your voice to those other voices that uh, have less memorials. Kinthea, do we have any, any more? Kinthea? Okay. I'm... Unmuting. There you are. There you are. <laughs> Sorry. I hoped it wasn't my board. I'm talking away. <laughs> I, you know, I have to say, one of the things that I really enjoy going through these comments is to see so many layers of her being, of her personality, some of them very intimate and playful, and some of them referring to her professionalism. Uh, this one is from Anne-Marie Scherer. Carmen, what can be said now that you've left this place? You blazed so bright, so strong, so beautifully. My life was enriched by our friendship. And here's one from Jordan Banner. Carmen was a live wire, full of energy and stubbornness that made her a true force of nature. I'm grateful for her presence in my life and our interactions on the 2020 trip to Egypt. Uh, let's see, here's another one. This is uh, addressing Carmen and her son Galen, who passed away. Loving Carmen and Galen was very easy. Both brilliant souls. Your lights of truth and wisdom will be long-lasting and shining. I will visit you in the afterlife, and I know you will be waiting with a huge hug. Your earthly visits and wisdom will be missed, and we could sure value those. More shall be revealed to all of us who were lucky enough to know you. You will now have a new life and maybe come back to solve some of Earth's miseries. Well, I feel you are studying for assignments as a type. Love you forever. So it goes on and on, and we'll put this link in there. And I, I want to uh, just wrap up here before I pass it to Timothy and mention that I've been in touch with her sister, Adele, and Adele wanted us to let everyone know that Carmen's work, The New Atlantis, will be coming out. It'll be completed soon and be released in the near future. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. Well, Cause she had finished uh, I'm going to let Timothy talk about yeah, yeah, that's obviously, she had finished, I think, most of it shot, I don't know how many, uh, well, this is a perfect segue, Tim, you know, I've known you as an engineer, as a designer, as a guy interested in alternative physics and engineering, and, you know, cutting edge designs built, uh, looking at those themes, and then I found out that you really are a very talented filmmaker, in the old time vernacular of the use of that term only with the modern, you know, video and digital materials and all that. And then you got a call one day out of the blue. Now, Kinthea 
course, had one up on you because she had worked with Carmen on the show. We were so fortunate to have many, many hours of Carmen's legacy on the other side of midnight. So there, there's four, uh, three links, four, five, and six in my items for tonight um, uh, that relate to what she was doing and her philosophies and her wide-spectrum research. But you came in kind of late to the party, and at some point you got a phone call. Can you take us through? we got plenty of time. Take us through how you had the extraordinary pleasure and honor of meeting with Carmen. Well, Richard, it didn't happen quite like that, actually. I was somehow, I can't remember, but I was somehow part of one or more of the shows when Carmen was on the other side of Midnight. Uh, I don't know if I was commenting or something or was a guest or, or I say guest, co-guest or whatever <laughs> it was, but for some reason I was there. Part of our extended week. conversations, which is what this show really is all about. Yeah. And Kintia also was on, uh, I think certainly the show I'm thinking is the last show that she was on. And in the after party, we were picking up on some of the points and the sort of excitement that Carmen uh, was was sharing with us all and was a broadcasting about her new series, The New Atlantis. And at that point, uh, I had just finished a, uh, a video production for a, a yacht owner in China, actually. And uh, Kintia played a significant part in that production as well in sort of co-creating and also editing, which is qu- quite a big feat for us to do because it was... Um, the deadline was quite short, shall I say. Uh, so we needed to be very creative very quickly. And I, I think we pulled it off, and I, the client was very oh, happy. Oh, I've, I've, I've seen it. You definitely pulled it off. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. So we, we were also enthused by that and sort of, you know, the way we were able to you know, embrace the latest technology and uh, with the edit suites and so on. Um, in fact, it was you, Richard, who even suggested the editing app. I remember it was you. You said, why don't you look at this? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's new, it's interesting, and it's... Um, we did. We, we well, just... when, when you sit at the center of the spider web, people send stuff to me all the time, and I have to winnow out, you know, the noise from the signal. And as soon as I saw this, I knew you guys were involved in this China yacht thing, and I said, oh my God, this has all the bells and whistles, and the price is exactly right. It was for free, at least one version, so I yes. introduced you guys, and you turned out to be able to play it like a harp, and it has turned out some amazing video from, from both of you. Well, thank you very much. I remember the uh, I in in looking at the owner's manual, uh, there was something like 2,000 pages. <laughs> and, uh, we just sort of <laughs> thought, well, one way is to start at the beginning. The other way is just to start editing. So we mm-hmm. did. Uh, and uh, it, it is actually a very good uh, edit suite with sound engineering and all sorts of things, color balancing everything inside there. It's called DaVinci Resolve, if anybody would like to try it, by the way. But uh, moving on, so we, we were enthused by that, and Carmen was obviously enthused about finishing her new series. And uh, so we just hit it off at the end of the show and started talking about you know, possibilities. And that conversation uh developed quite quickly into over the next few weeks into Carmen inviting uh, myself and Kintia to to visit her in, in the south of Spain, in Malaga, near Malaga. And uh, as Kintia was uh, half a world away and I was much closer, 
for me, it was only a, you know, a two or three hour flight or something from Istanbul to, to Malaga. Um, I went over there and uh, Carmen basically put me up for, I think it was slightly longer than a week. Oh, wow. And uh, Didn't she live in some remarkable place down the hill from some ancient henge or something? I don't know about that. I didn't see that. Uh, she didn't show that to me, but she did certainly drive me around and show me some of the sites, which were, which were very pleasant, beautiful beaches. I remember villages. she was so happy to move from Canada to Spain. It was like, finally, it was coming home for her. Well, I guess so. Uh, it was it was certainly a very warm, uh, warm in personality and warm, warm country to live in, warm culture. Food was delicious. Um, and also, I'm just trying to get to the point, which is also very important. It was also very close to where her stable was. And uh, she had this, well, enormous stallion, um, incredible looking horse, incredible, you know, strong, aesthetic. I don't know how many hands, but huge, 16 plus 17. I don't know what it was anymore. But I mean, it was a horse that you would think, do I really want to get on this thing? <laughs> Sounds, and, sounds like and a, a pressure on. And a full-blown stallion as well. So uh, all the bells and whistles were indeed still attached, um, full of energy and therefore a little bit quirky as well. So it took somebody with courage to get on such a horse and uh, you know, gain control. And uh, I think Carmen had a special connection with that horse because you know, she, she she did gain control, but she did it in a, in a sort of a balanced way, I would say. Uh, so, yeah, I, I have memories of watching them uh, running around the dressage ring, walking, you know, starting, stopping, reversing up, backing up, as you like to say. But um, And also, while that's happening, uh, she used to have like a lesson a day with uh, instructors. Um, and it was not so much how to ride a horse, of course. She knew that very well. But it was more about how to... Um, gain the best performance, best behavior out of this particular stallion. So she was into dressage? Uh, yes. I mean, not, not just rambling around. No, absolutely. She wants to do it properly. Oh, so uh, she was she was going around sort of like a, a dressage ring. She wasn't doing full competition dressage, but she was, you know, she was testing herself, testing the horse and, and trying to get the best out of that, that sort of, um, that friendship between them. And the horse, by the way, was called... Uh, Marito, and, oh, uh, and another important character in her life was her little dog called Bella, who I thought she was joking, but she, the, her dog Bella actually did have a selection of different colored sunglasses for different days. Of the what? Week. <laughs> oh my I, God. I don't, don't know what breed, I, I, sort of like, let's just say in the neighborhood of a Shih Tzu, that type of uh, smaller, long-haired sort of pug face type dog. I don't know exactly which breed it was, but she was a big character. And uh, yeah, because of the UV and she had sensitive eyes and the sunshine there. So yeah, she did have, I don't know, three, four, five pairs of sunglasses, I guess. Oh my God. Robin used to love to buy Morella various coats. Like she had a Halloween coat. She had a Christmas coat. You know, when, when, when women particularly you know, relate to animals as people. And of course, Morella was a person. You know, there's there's nothing they won't do. So it's interesting, another facet of Carmen's character. 
That's absolutely that's absolutely true. Yeah, but but the reason for um, for visiting Carmen was to basically explore and brainstorm ideas of how to um, form, sculpt all of the the video and film she had. I say film. I say film because it was taken in a sort of traditional way, interviews, cutaway scenes, and so on. But yes, it's all on high, you know, HD video. Uh, but she had hours and hours of this new video to make the new series. And of course, she had lots of ideas and lots of thoughts, and she'd written uh, a prelim- preliminary script for it. But the reason uh, she invited me and, and also Kintia, because Kintia was also on uh, Skype, we did a, a few Skype meetings during that week as well, um, was to brainstorm, create, how would you convey that information? How would you put those ideas onto a screen? How would you visually tell the story as well as the music, as well as the, the, the interviews and the cutaways themselves. So that was a fascinating way to, to get to know her. And we literally spent every day, uh, for, I guess it must've been six, seven, eight days or something, maybe slightly more discussing, brainstorming how, how the information could be cut into different scenes, into different episodes, how many episodes, how long the episode should be, and so on and so on. And, of course, how they, the music and how the sounds and how, we, how you would tell the story. So that was an absolutely fascinating experience, and we made very good progress um, for, for that week or so. Yeah, it, it's um, I, I'm, I, I have no idea what stage the the new series is at the moment. I, I hear from Carmen's sister, Adele, that the series will be coming out soon. But I have to say that after that week, um, that this is going back to 2019, a, a lot of things happened in 2019 that sort of displaced people due to this uh, COVID so-called pandemic. And I ended up uh, disconnecting and not going further with that project at that time. I ended up being in Italy and uh, in America, and uh, <laughs> I couldn't get home for many months during that. Uh, I remember, yeah, vividly. You were stranded yes. in Florida, of all places. Terrible. It was terrible, yes. I spent a very humid summer in Florida uh, waiting for a launch. I got stranded myself in a quirky way, and I remember <laughs> the sand and the beach and the humid you know, sea breezes, which were stronger than breezes, and... Yeah, I, I prefer to be in Florida during the winter, not not during the summer. Uh, so, did you guys talk when you were there with her for that week? How the New Atlantis, which of course was her model that we were looking through the eyes of Egypt at this mythical, you know, extraordinary civilization of Atlantis, first introduced in Western literature through Plato, actually through Solon, I think, quoting. Or was it Plato? Yeah, Plato quoting Solon. But I mean, to her, the embodiment of an ancient, extraordinary epic in human history that has been basically lost, if not actively suppressed, was a very concrete reality. And I'm curious, how was she going to build the new Atlantis series uh, around this idea compared to the Pyramid Code, which kind of introduced it? in her research? Well, I think that uh, 
I mean, I, I've, I've freshly watched the Pyramid Code. I watched it. In fact, we watched it together when I was in Spain. Uh, I said we should definitely watch the Pyramid Code because we need to sort of refresh our minds and see, you know, which way to go from there with the New Atlantis. And uh, she said she'd seen it so many times she couldn't, <laughs> she couldn't watch it one more time. And I said, let's let's do it differently. Let's with watch it feelings. Let, yeah, we, let, we watched it backwards. Let's watch it backwards. <laughs> I was just going to say, yes, why not? So we watched the last episode first and, and, you know, we went all the way through. And it was a way of sort of note-taking, but also see it in a different way. I mean, she hadn't, I think, think she had watched it backwards before, but we, we did. So... For the listeners who have not seen it, I can highly recommend it. I, I've watched it again this week, and it, it still carries a very strong message. And oh, I've watched a million of these, you know, History Channel and Ancient Mysteries and all. It's it's unique. It's it's the it's the Egypt documentation at the edge of forever that you really have never seen until you watch Carmen's Tour de Force. Mm-hmm. So one of the key characters obviously apart from Carmen in in this uh first ah, series him, of, him, yes. was Abdel Hakim Awyan I'm probably pronouncing his uh, name incorrectly her incredible but, guide yeah Hakim now he he was a really big character <laughs> and unfortunately uh he I mean he he was given a little bit of context he was trained as an archaeologist in Europe but he grew up as a kid in the Giza Plateau. So he used to run around all the tunnels and all the things which are now, you know, long walled off, fenced off and con- concreted up. That was his playground when he, when he grew up with his friends. Hmm. So he had an intimate knowledge of uh, the Giza Plateau and then was educated in Europe as an archaeologist and then came back as a, uh, an archaeologist and guide. So that's very special knowledge. Also, because he was... Um, born, I, I don't know a huge amount this, about, about this guy's biography, but because he was born um, so so close by and he was taught uh, even a different version of Egyptian language. So he was taught by his elders by word of mouth. So along the way, he had a very, very different insight into what the pyramids were all about. He had a very different insight into what the various hieroglyphics mean as well. Mm. Uh, so he had an awful lot to say and an awful lot to offer, and he, and he had a very a huge charisma. I mean, when he comes on screen, the screen would light up. Um, so he was clearly a key player, and Carmen had lots of video of him, um, where he, which was which was not actually included in the first series in the Pyramid Code. So I was fascinated by that. That's one of the things I started looking at early on. I was looking through the rushes of. Of Hakim. Do you know how much of her older material, again, people that were no longer with us, she was planning to put in the new Atlantis compared to the code? Well, Richard, when I arrived, we literally laid out all of the information, you know, on the on sheets of paper on the floor, on the table, on desks. We looked at the <laughs> videos we were watching just to see what she had. She had huge amounts of information. And there was... Basically, most of the information was new. I say new, new. It's not been yet broadcast for the new series. But, and she knew the story she wanted to tell. She wanted to go through certain milestones. But the key thing was how to, how to tell the story. So I was suggesting that 
we should let Hakim tell the story. Ah. Despite the fact that he'd passed away just before the Pyramid Code was even broadcast, which is a very sad part about the story because he never actually saw it on air, as far as I know. He literally died within days before it went on well, air. Well, at least not in this dimension, but... <clears throat> okay, so... Therefore, there was a lot of information because he sort of became quite a bright, shining star of the first series that I thought it would be great if we could make him tell the story or certainly create the interludes between the different chapters or different points mm. or different uh, uh, episodes of the series. So we're, we're looking at that as a concept. And of course, when when you bring somebody who has is, is, is passed out of this dimension onto essentially... Uh, narrate, not narrate, but certainly sort of uh, partially narrate the new series, then we were restricted with how much information we actually had. So so we went looking through that, yes, there were comments and statements and things he said, which could indeed be very useful to, to guide, not guide the, the new series. So it's it's kind of like the, the glue between segments. Exactly, exactly. And then how visually, well, of course, we had video. We didn't want to show him as sort of a full-frame um, sort of interview. So we had this idea that Carmen was a great believer in orbs. Oh. And she had she had lots of photographs of orbs around the pyramids and inside the Great Pyramids and so on. She had video of these orbs. We were also looking at those as well. Fascinating. Um, you know, some people can say they're particles of dust flaring up in, in bright light. Other people can say it's lens effects, and sometimes you just cannot explain them. It, it is odd how this thing will independently, this this little semi-translucent orb, or floats around the frame and seemingly have no connection to reality. So she she believed the orb was a a uh, what can we say a a messenger a from another place. Yeah, yeah. A, a ripple in time, something which is just poking through the veil. That type of thing, a messenger from another time, why not? <laughs> so so I suggested that why don't we make um, Hakim appear on the screen oh, in an orb. Oh, in not, an orb. But not necessarily like, you know, dancing around like a, like a ping pong ball or something, but, you know, in a very graceful, elegant sense. Just with a kind of an impending aura. Yes. Wow. Yes. So What a she, cool she loved, idea. Well, she loved that idea, and we were then – you know, at that point as well, I mean, in one room we had all these papers and lying around all over the floor, the desks and everything to sort of, you know, dot together the, the series. In the other room I set up uh, an edit suite for her. And in fact, she had the same Mac that I did, uh, Macintosh that I did, quite a powerful one at that. And uh, so I set that up for her. I mean, she knew how to set it up, but I set it up for editing. And so I installed the same app on there. And then on the other side of the room, on another desk, I set my, my Macintosh up. Oh, so she had DaVinci 2 to work with. Well, after I arrived, yes, I downloaded Excellent. it and set it up. Excellent. So, at the, you know, before I left, at the end of the week, we had two edit suites in one room. And we were, <laughs> you know, up, up and running um, to actually start work. And the idea was that I was going to go back to, to Turkey and, and Kintia with the same setup would be in uh, San Francisco, and between the three of us, we would bring it all together. Wow. Well, so we're not limited that, to 3D men uh, dimensionality anymore. No, no. So I'm, I'm kind of focusing on, on 
many points at the same time, Richard. Would you like to offer some direction? Which way would you like to go? Well, we got about four minutes to the top of the hour. We're going to bring on Barbara Honiger, who knew and worked with um, Carmen at a different level, uh, a more occult level, a more deep time level. Um, I'm just intrigued with how this this next project. In other words, talk about why she wanted to call it the New Atlantis as opposed to the Pyramid Code. Also, we should not forget Kintia. Kintia, would you like to come on as well? Because I'm I'm talking a lot and I'm not hearing you so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing a great job. I was going to say really... why. If you remember, I... if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So <laughs> I just want to add that. You know, I thought it was just so wonderful that we could be across the ocean editing a film together with this app, you know, and meeting on Skype. It was like I was right there, even though I physically wasn't there. I was there. And um, just listening to Carmen and her ideas and how she thought about things, as a creative being myself, I really appreciate it. She was always out of the box. She would she would uh, see an insight that others didn't see. And so it was, I thought, very exciting to be participating in this and, and co-creating. I really enjoyed it. So back to you, Timothy. <laughs> so out of all of the information, which it took, it took literally two or three days, probably three days to go through, just to even not, not watch every every rush, every every interview, but just to understand yeah, that's drone footage, those interviews, that's with these people. We also the next thing was to do was I was trying to identify what was missing um, in order to join all of the dots together to make a cohesive series. So one of the suggestions was that uh, due to the you know the storyline that Carmen wanted to 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 map out, there was a milestone missing at that particular point. Um, so I suggested, well, why don't you contact Graham Hancock and see if he'll do mm. a little interview because then we can glue that section with that section and that would also, you know, I'm sure he would appreciate as well the, the, the exposure. So, you know, part of that week there was also tracking down Graham and uh, sending an email, you know, creating an email, not giving too much information, but giving enough information so that he wants to feel that he wants to collaborate and so on. And indeed, uh, I think before the week ended, uh, Carmen actually had confirmation that uh, the meeting was on and she was going to give a talk in the UK anyway. So I remember we were uh, trying to work out how she could buy the camera, the video camera, because she had many cameras, of course, mm. but she needed something. Uh, I'll tell you what, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning for the first segment of our memorial to an absolutely amazing woman, a friend, a colleague, a visionary, who I hope is upstairs looking at what we're doing and smiling. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. Our tribute to Carmen Bolter will return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, February 11th, 2023. Our tribute to a friend and colleague who, unfortunately, is uh, no longer at the other end of a normal telephone. It's very different to make these other types of long-distance calls. So, um, I want to come back to you uh, for, for a moment, Tim, in terms of the new series versus the old series, and then we will introduce uh, Barbara, Barbara Honiger, who had the joy of actually meeting um, uh, Carmen. And it's fascinating when I, when I kind of consider the personalities of Carmen and Barbara together in the same room, uh, I don't know what to say. So, Tim, new series versus old series, what can we expect? Well, Richard, if you think I'm going to give you away the plot, you, you must be uh, mistaken there. <laughs> For example, I also cannot give away the plot because uh, the Carmen entrusted all the rushes and videos and documentaries with myself and Kintia, and we, we you know, so, you know, signed away uh, an agreement that we would not share uh, without without her permission the use of those things or, or even talking about them. So. She wants to keep it very confidential and hush-hush. So while there are a lot of um, exciting interviews and views and drone footage and so on, all new. Um, also, the as I say, she created milestones. She, she knew the story she wanted to tell. Um, and while I believe we, we catalyzed, um, Kintia, myself, and Tom, we catalyzed the way that the series would be created, I... Unfortunately, again, due to the 2019 um, events in 2019, the I became separated from the project because I was physically separated. I was, uh, as you say, stranded away from my home. Um, 
And also there were other things going on and we all, I think, were distracted in 2019 and 2019. So for all reasons, we, we did not continue with this, um, uh, sort of triangle, uh, editing and uh, production idea. So we, we put it on ice for a while. Um, and unfortunately, what can I say is this, that I, I did not know that karma had even passed. That sounds ridiculous because obviously we were communicating quite closely for a while and then time went past, you know, one, two years went past. And I was quite shocked to hear that Kintia informed me, you know, a couple of months ago that karma had passed. I, I, I really had no idea. I was equally I, stunned. We all kind of found it about the same time. And I hadn't called her because I kind of had made a pact that I was going to call her when she was on the eve of the new series and that we would give it a platform and then she would go on other shows and all that kind of thing. So I had no day-to-day reason, you know, and, and I think I sent out an email and I didn't get a response and I thought, oh, she just upped her eyebrows because producing television is very, 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 very time-consuming, as you obviously know. So I was shocked, too, that months had passed And it's so interesting that these spheres of influence, you know, the people in our lives, the people who we communicate on a semi-regular basis, they may not overlap with other spheres. So even in the era of social media, it, it took a long time for us to realize, wait a minute, there's this missing, missing member of the family. Indeed. Indeed. Well, certainly, uh, there were lots of fascinating um, locations that Carmen had been around the world uh, taking video, drone footage, interviews, and so on. And I, I will say that one of the whole segments towards the end of the series um, is featuring, or certainly at the time I was involved, was going to feature on these modern-day uh, pyramids created in Russia. And I forget the guy's name, the scientist. Maybe you can... Golov or Gorlov, I believe. He's, be. he, he's a Russian billionaire, an oligarch, yes. and he's got incredible, demonstrable results from pyramids that look nothing like the templates in uh, Egypt that we're so familiar with. Indeed. They're, they're taller and the base is less, less large. We but say. we do That's find them at the, at the southern part of the Nile, called the Meru Pyramids, which are a range of morphologies. And my take was that the different shapes match the different physics of the different eras on Earth as we go through the processional and hyperdimensional physics cycle. And uh, at some point, you know, uh, we may be able to actually test that idea. Well, that's exactly what she was hoping to do, because as I say, before we lost communication through the, the, the 2019, uh, we were planning to go to, uh, to go to Russia and take video of these new pyramids that are being constructed or have been constructed. Maybe they're still under construction. I don't know at this stage, but the idea was to actually create a sort of hotel stroke health spa experience, mm. uh, using hyperdimensional energy to heal people. And these, Pyramids have been constructed in, in at the size where you could actually enter them and, and uh You know, one of the people that may know a lot more about that is Sam Osmonigich, who's gonna join us uh at the top of the third hour, if not a little before. Because he was working very closely with Carmen on the discoveries there in uh 
the archaeological park in Bosnia and this extraordinary set of pyramids that he has discovered and has created a really remarkable research uh, consortium around. So obviously we're going to ask him. So, all right, let me segue. Barbara, you all know Barbara. She was a member of the Reagan administration, served in the White House, had all kinds of extraordinary insights to his, uh, you know, almost assassination, uh, has told us extraordinarily interesting tales out of school, is very much at the forefront of the 9-11 truth movement. But what you may not know is that she holds the first, if not one of the first, degrees, a master's of science and consciousness from JFK University in the Bay Area. And it was at that level and some very early insights that were communicated to her, which I'm sure she will describe in some detail, that brought her and Carmen together, a force on Earth to be reckoned with. Barbara, welcome to the other side of midnight. Hi, Richard and everybody. This is a sacred program. Well, it's a program of honor and love because Carmen was really, I mean, I know a lot of people, and Carmen was one of a kind. One of a kind. Yes. And I'm not exactly sure what you meant when you said, well, if we were in the same room, I don't know what to say. But that's okay. You don't have to go into that. (laughs) I just mean the energy. I would have to wear some kind of a force shield because you're both one of a kind and your kinds overlapped in this amazing sphere which encompassed, which basically encompassed Egypt, ancient yes. Egypt. Yes, that's correct. Um, I do want to start by, and I'm just very grateful that we're doing this show. Um, I would like to start by saying you and Kinthea missed a, a really good trick. Um, I think that this show should have been called The Other Side of the Nile. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so literally, um, there was a comment, I think, between you and Tim. I'm not sure who, um, but uh, to the to the effect that, uh, yes, the pyramids, there isn't any evidence that they were actually tombs for physical bodies. Um, but it is the case that the uh, east side of the Nile was the side of the living, and the west side was the side of the dead, what we would call the dead, but they didn't think of it that way. And that's where, for instance, the tombs in the Valley of the Kings, Valley of the Queens, and 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 all the other tombs. See, the way I would look at it is the Egyptians, who've never really been understood, and, and Carmen's work demonstrates that Budge is not the be-all and end-all of, of consciousness in Egypt, they understood that the pyramids were hyperdimensional machines connecting between this dimension and the others, and that when one dies, one does not cease to exist, one transitions to this other set of dimensions, and so the pyramids were placed in the West like the setting sun, because at that transition, you make a step up in dimensions, and it's all part of that gestalt, which has been hopelessly mangled by Western science, mainly Britain, thinking that these were just big, big, big tombs. Right. So um, what I'd like to do is remember Carmen through my experiences with her and what we communicated with each other and what we were planning to do. And uh, I I still plan to do it. Um, but seeing as you had this quip that, oh, my God, 
what would happen if Carmen and Barbara were in the same room? That's actually what I was the experience I was going to begin with. Because it's interesting that Dr. Sam is coming on uh, maybe, you know, towards the end of this hour, certainly the top of the third hour with Maria Wheatley, which is very exciting. Because um, what I wanted to communicate and did communicate in a very deep and high spiritual level with Carmen um, was what I call the serious point. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. But I want to tell you about the experience when I first met her. because. Um, I learned through your show, uh, one of your shows, that she was going to be speaking at the Global Pyramid Conference. I believe that was in 20, uh, 2018, maybe. Anyway, it was a number of years ago, uh, maybe 2016. Anyway, Dr. Sam and Carmen were speakers, and I wanted to meet both of them in person, but in particular Carmen, because I, I had to tell her about the importance of this serious point on the Giza Plateau. And I'll get to what that is in a moment, what I communicated specifically to her. But when I saw from, from your show that she was going to be there, I got my ticket and I flew to Chicago. That was where it was. And um, I got there later than most of the people uh, who had arrived already. And I got there when the uh, kind of pre- evening keynote address, which I don't believe was Carmen's. It was somebody else. I think it was Dr. Sam. Uh, but I got there that evening, and there was a cocktail party, where kind of a meet and greet thing. And so I went up to my room, uh, freshened up, and went went down to the cocktail, up, up to the cocktail party, actually. And when I walked in the room, uh, you had to walk down a few steps. And there were all these tables for four, some of them high, some of them low, some of them with chairs and some of them where you just stood and had your drink or whatever. And there was only one chair open. And I noticed that there were three people at that table. And so I went over to that table and I sat down in that chair. And there was a couple to my right. And to my left, there was a woman whose back was to me. She was talking to somebody else. And... In about 30 seconds, she turned around. She must have sensed there was someone there. <laughs> she turned around, and it was Carmen. Of course. And I said, oh, my God, Carmen, I come all the way from California to meet you and tell you about the serious point. I was just like, you know, Dorothy at the, at the Gate of Oz. Mm. And there was this sudden silence. And she looked at me. We locked eyes, and she said, oh, my God. There are pins and needles going up and down. <laughs> Who are you? Wow. And I said, well, I don't know who I am, but I know what I've come to tell you. <laughs> and she said, let's go. And we went out in the hall, actually at the long table where people would come and check in. Nobody was there. They'd already, I was the last person probably to arrive. And just the two of us sat at that long table with white tablecloth. And she told me about the new Atlantis and how important it was. And I told her about the serious point and how important it was and that I had come to try to see if we could work on a film about it together, because of course I'd seen the, uh, the pyramid code. And she said, yes, but I have to finish the new Atlantis first. Okay. So that's how I met Carmen. And um, I will tell you one other before I tell you about the serious point, which is what 
um, really galvanized her as well as myself. As and it I, should. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I should tell you that uh, the very next year I went to Egypt and uh, we have talked at length on this show a number of times about it. And, and some of my items for tonight will trigger my memories of a few of those major experiences if we get to it. Um, however, I think I've got 11 uh, items in my items where where everybody should go because it's a, it's an amazing education about in-depth of what I'm only going to be able to touch on here, probably with the time that we have. But the, the other uh, connection I had besides when we went home from the conference, uh, then she and I went back and forth by phone and by email. Uh, and um, the other experience I had with her was um, after I went to Egypt, she went back to Egypt. I think she'd been 36 times or something like that. And she was back in Egypt, so that would have probably been 20, 2018 because I was there in 2017 in February. Anyway, um, she called me. First she emailed me, and I'm not good about seeing emails, so then she called me. And she said she was sitting in both of our favorite bar, this magnificent bar in the Mina House Hotel, when you first walk in the door and it's up on the left. It's magnificent. She said, I'm sitting here looking out at the pyramids, and I can't get you in the serious point off of my mind. Mm. Okay. So now I'm going to go into what I mean by the serious point, and I'd like people to go to my items. Uh, and you want to tell people how to do that, or would you like me to do that? Um, you're, on, you're on a roll. Go for it. Okay. So uh, what you do is you go to the page for tonight's show, and um, uh, you're going to pretty soon see fast links to items, and you scroll over to my name, Barbara, and you click on my name, and you will go directly in this long queue to my first item. Uh, and there are, I think, 11 in a row there, vertically. And I'm I'm actually going to, because the reason I'm going to read you this short summary of what I mean by this serious point and why it's so historically vitally important, because this is the text of the first email I sent to Carmen. Ah. In our lifetimes, there will be an immense historic breakthrough that will finally reveal who we are, whose trigger event will be a stunning archaeological find in ancient, from ancient Egypt, whose location was revealed to me in a di direct knowing experience in the early 1980s. For years at that point, I had studied the reign of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, about whom, along with their eldest daughter, Meritaten, whose Celtic name Skoda, after, after whom Scotland was named, I had experienced profound lifelong synchronicity. And I can get into some of those if you want, but they are in my items. While sitting at my desk in the White House in 1982, I suddenly knew with, with a sense of absolute certainty that the three pyramids at Giza were intended by their great architect, which is claimed by the ancient Egyptians to be Toth himself, by the way, or Hermes, that these three stars, that these three pyramids at Giza were intended by the great architect to be and are the projection onto the earth of the three stars in the belt of Orion, I immediately wrote this up and communicated it in a long letter to my contacts at the United Nations. This was at least a year before Robert Bubal had the same initial realization and almost a decade before the, over a decade before the publication 
of his book based on it, The Orion Mystery in 1994. But here's the interesting thing. Bouval focuses in his book and in all of his public addresses, I've gone to many of them, only on the projection onto the surface of the Earth of the stars in the Orion constellation and completely leaves out the most important point on the Earth, not far from the pyramids, and to which they point, representing the most important star to the ancient Egyptians themselves, Sirius. It is beneath this what I call the Sirius point that I know will be unearthed a magnificent temple of Isis, the great goddess of the ancient Egyptians, whom they identified with the star Sirius. By a great cosmic synchronicity, Sirius, in the time of the ancient Egyptians, first rose above the horizon on the very day that the Nile began to flood, returning its life-giving water and rich, deep soil to the land which became the high holy day of the ancient Egyptians. At that point, it was around July 23rd, which changes with the procession, and was the basis of the priestly class's Sothic, S-O-T-H-I-C, calendar. The Isis temple beneath the sands at the Sirius Point, a real place on the earth, is also the most likely to house the long-awaited Akashic records, which were predicted by Edgar Cayce, as you know which are believed to record all major events in world history leading up to the opening of the records themselves. If so, this would mean that for the first time in history, from the moment of their opening on, humankind will finally be free to determine its own destiny. In other words, no more predetermination. In 1981, it was also revealed to me, I'm almost done, in 1981, it was also revealed to me that the discovery at the Sirius point will also connect our Earth to Mars, the latter of which was the focus of the most unbelievable synchronicity of my entire life. And my life has been so full of them <laughs> that I was called Lady Luck. You can say that, yes, indeed. Okay. In 1976, while working at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where I was a graduate student, I decided to take a walk for my lunch break in the plaza of the university near the student union. A stone artist, I put that in quotes, named Tim Jim Quackenbush had set up a table on which he was displaying and selling slices of sandstone with the most beautiful lines and swirls and deep reds, tans, and black. Each of these stones was a visual synchronicity, as if the earth itself had painted its own future landscapes in rock laid down billions of years before, of seagulls flying over a spit of land jutting out into the ocean, of hills and forests, of a lone tree atop a high cliff like in a Japanese haiku painting. I was immediately drawn to one single small stone that had been made into a necklace, whose lines and swirls painted, as it were, in sandstone, would look like a reddish desert plain strewn with rocks, and in the distance, a sun surrounded by a series of concentric rings. I bought the necklace on the spot and took it back to my office, and then home at the end of the day, forgetting to take it off when I went to bed. Early that morning, I was awakened at about 1 a.m. by an excited call from a friend and colleague whose day job was working with a space shuttle simulator at NASA's Moffett Field in a, at Mountain View, California. Quote, if you can get here in 45 minutes, I'll get you in the gate 
and you'll be able to see the first images come in live from Mars, he told me. You can imagine I was dressed and out the door in minutes and was sitting in one of the plush red velveteen seats of NASA's auditorium at Moffett Field just in time to see the first pixels from Mars's camera projected live onto a huge screen. That photo came in one vertical line at a time. Slowly but surely, the first ever image of Mars taken towards the horizon formed on the screen before the excited audience. During this long and slow process, as I sat there, glued to the screen, there came a moment when enough of the picture had formed that I suddenly realized what I was seeing literally was the image on the stone necklace around my neck, which in that moment I'd forgotten I was, until that moment I'd forgotten I was still wearing. Oh my God, I blurted out. I just bought this, Alan. I whispered to my friend sitting to my left as I pulled out the Mars stone from around my neck and showed it to him, at which he gasped. When the time is right, which itself will be synchronistically revealed, I will be wearing the Mars stone at the serious point on the high holy day of the ancient Egyptians when the great temple of Isis will finally be unveiled from under the sands of Egypt near the three stars pyramids at Giza. So that's what I sent. The first thing when I got back home after telling Carmen verbally about the serious point, this is what I sent her. And before we uh, maybe, uh, you know, take questions, I'd just like to mention a wonderful synchronicity that I also told her when right after we first met there at, uh, at, in, the, uh, in the bar uh, at the hotel, where I also later met Dr. Sam. And um, this is wonderful because it has to do with the heart and the feather uh, being weighed at Osiris's door. So this wonderful synchronicity, which I've written up and published, um, when I was in the um, the program in consciousness studies at John F. Kennedy University, I started that in 1976 and got my degree because it was night school, you know, only a few classes uh, a quarter. And I got my degree in June of 1981 um, and uh, crossed the stage with Manley Hall, who received the first honorary degree in consciousness studies and parapsychology as I received the first earned degree in consciousness studies and parapsychology, fully accredited in the, in the world. And that was at John F. Kennedy University in Orinda. So when I was in that program for all those years, doing night school, um, there was a, a young man um, who, he, know, he knew about my synchronicities. They were kind of, kind of legendary. Uh, and he was a skeptic. He was a scientist. He was a skeptic, which is fine. And he wanted to test me. Now, he didn't tell me that he that he was going to test me. He just tested me. Now, I'm going to tell you the test, and I'm going to tell you how I passed the test, which is amazing, and it has to do with the heart and the feather. So I had, um, I had told him uh, that I had had a series of synchronicities in which a scale uh, appeared in my life. And in which a very light heart, like made a very light, light uh, pumice, uh, appeared in my life, and I thought that um, probably um, there was uh, a missing feather. Uh, so what happened was um, my friend, my friend Patrick, 
went to, I wasn't there, he went to one of his professor's homes for an evening event, a, a dinner and an evening event. And while they were, after dinner, they were sitting in the living room or the, the lounge, and the cat came in with a large hawk mm. that it had killed or found dead. And, of course, the hawk is a, is a representative of Horus. So brought in the hawk and dropped it in the middle of the floor, just this dead hawk. And uh, the, the professor got up and picked up the, the hawk to, you know, take it and the cat out. <laughs> so the conversation to continue. And a single feather fell off of the hawk. Oh, the my. A beautiful orange and brown feather. All right, so hold it there at the bottom okay. of the hour. My guest this morning is Barbara Honiger, who had the extraordinary pleasure to meet um, Carmen Bolter. And believe me, that was a meeting I certainly wish I could have been, uh, you know, as they say, a fly on the wall. We're tonight honoring our friend and departed colleague, Carmen, and we have much to come, some fascinating surprises. We're going to close the loop on the serious point toward the end of the program. So if you touch that dial, you're a little dumber than I think you are. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Our memorial and tribute to Carmen Boulder, our friend, will continue. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, the 11th of February of 2023, our memorial to an amazing lady, amazing researcher, an extraordinary, vibrant, and alive person who had a deep communications capability with horses, white stallions, and enjoyed her later years in the company of such horses in the beautiful 
an incredibly vibrant land of Spain. So we're talking right now with Barbara Honiger, who became her colleague and friend by hearing Carmen on one of... It's amazing the ripples that I'm kind of hearing from this show, that these connections, if we hadn't had Carmen on, would they have happened? I mean, that's kind of like your ideal is to connect in the ether those that should be connected. But really, this is kind of, uh, as they used to say, begging the percentages. So anyway, uh, Barbara, please continue. I can hear you five by. Okay, good. Um, I I wanted to remind you also, I think I've mentioned it before on previous shows, that I wouldn't be on this show at all, and I've now been on dozens of times, my God. <laughs> I mean, that's all I do, you know. <laughs> well, not all you do, but... That's not true. Um, that was a joke. But anyway, um, I, I just want to remind everybody that I wouldn't be on this show if it hadn't been that um, I listened to the show to begin with and learned that Carmen was going to be at the uh, Global Pyramid Conference with Dr. Sam and went to it. I believe that was 2016 because it was the year before I went to Egypt, which was early 2017. And when I sat down in that only chair and she turned around, the couple, we were interacting with such intensity that I think we drove that poor couple away in the other two chairs. And who came to sit down in one of those other two chairs, none other than Laura London. Ah, I was going to bring up Laura, because Laura mentioned to me that she had met some interesting and important folks that she wanted to connect with at that Chicago conference. And well, she put it together. That's excellent. How I'm on your show. And um, so she listened to Carmen and I go back and forth like two Hal computers meeting each other. <laughs> and uh, to, to, then, then Carmen finally had to leave. Um, and... Um, actually, she went to the restroom, and then we went out in the hall, and, and, and just the two of us, as I mentioned. But uh, when she went to the restroom, as I recall, anyway, um, Laura turned to me, and she said, you've got to be on. Have you ever heard of the other side of midnight? And I hadn't. Uh, well, I had, because that's how I knew. But but I said, oh, yes, I have. And she said, well, you've got to be on. I'm going to make sure that you're on. So that's how I got on the show. Um, Holy cow. Yeah, and that's been how many years ago? My God, that that must have been beginning shortly after that in 20, 2016. Yeah, we've been on for, I forget how many years, but it's Six back. Six years? Yeah. 2014, 2015 was when yeah. Art conned me into doing this. Yeah. And then he had to leave through another doorway, so here we are. <laughs> right. Now, I would like to, um, I'm going to quickly go through my items because they're going to trigger my memories of oh, what good, I want to good. know about the serious point and Carmen and also for work. Um, I do want to let people know that my items number one, four, and five are text. They're very important. I just read you item number one. But on those items for numbers one and five, it's not good enough just to click on the link or on the text page. You have to download it for it to open large enough to read. I just wanted people to know that's the case in my items number one and five. So now to my item number two. Now, if everybody could look at that, what you're looking at is an actual photograph of the sky of Orion and Sirius. And you'll see Sirius down in the lower left near the horizon. And as I mentioned, the high holy days, the high holy day of the ancient Egyptians in uh, late July, mid to, mid to late July, um, usually said to have been then around July 23rd, um, 
that was when Sirius first popped above the horizon just before the sun. Of course, this was taken at night, this photograph. Now, if, can you imagine, can you imagine anybody writing a book about the pyramid code called the called the uh, Orion Correlation, Robert Duvall's book called the, the Orion Mystery, and leaving out the serious point in the desert not far from the pyramids? Now, that's an amazing, in my opinion, conscious deletion, cover-up. Um, number three. Um, well, is, or it could just be a lack of imagination on Robert's part. No, no, I know not. I'm going to get to that. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to get to it. I have proof that not. Um, so number three, um, uh, again, this is a kind of a graphic representation of uh, Louval's, uh, and, and again, uh, I had this realization by a you know very high download in 1980, early 1982, and he has said publicly that his first realization wasn't until 1983, and he published his book, The Orion Mystery, leading out the serious point. Um, in uh, 1995, 12 years later or so. Okay, or 11 years later. So so that's a graphic illustration. Number four is what I call my synchronicity bio. And again, it's not good enough, at least with, with my Chrome browser, to just click on the link or on the, um, the first page of the document. You have to actually download it, and then it opens uh, in full so that you can read it. And in a few minutes, I'm just going to tell you a couple of the amazing synchronicities in my synchronicity bio that have to do with a serious point as well, how I got into it in the first place. Um, number five, again, you have to download it to be able to read it in large text. The Stone of Destiny, Ancient Egypt, and Scotland's Synchronicities. Now, we've done a number of programs on this, Richard. Um, not directly related to the serious point, but but very important links to ancient Egypt. Um, I'm not going to go into that right now unless you want me to. Number six, um, this is, uh, if you can open this, everybody, uh, to a larger size, this is Carmen's own drawing of what she called the High Court of Isis. Oh, my. Look which at is that. her reconstruction, reconstruction based upon some photographs from 1910 that were published by an Egyptologist just of what, just of the tops of, I believe it was two columns that I don't know where they were, but she said that she had seen that photograph and I believe I believe I can find that photograph and send it to Keith to add under this. Um, you in, know, in her whole litany of interest in Egypt, going back and forth, back and forth, she made something like 34 visits to Egypt, and she yes. haunted the archives, the dusty, literal museum archives of the Egyptian museum there in Cairo. She got access, maybe through her guide, who knows, but she got access to ancient documents, ancient you know, records of expeditions, ancient photographs. So if anybody could put together a case for the high court of Isis at the serious point, it would have been her. Look at that sketch. If you click on it, it gets bigger. Well, this is not the serious point, of course. This is uh, literally, uh, according to her reconstruction, this is her theory, uh, was literally under the Sphinx. And that you you can see the stairway 
um, just in front of the oh, yes, yeah, yeah, I, all right. My, the, my bad. In, sorry, sorry. Yeah, in the temple. But my point is of, of including this because in our back and forth by email and telephone, this course by email attachment, um, she was very much into trying to find the high temple of Isis. And I believe I convinced her that, sure, it, there may be one there, but there's a bigger one at the serious point. Um, so that's why I wanted you to see that. Uh, number seven, um, I realize that Zawi Hawass isn't one of our favorite people, and there's good reason for that. Um, uh, he's, you know, in my opinion, I think everybody on this call, he's uh, the main cover-up artist. He's both, he's both the main revealer of things that don't really matter. Exactly, yes. Well, you and know, the, many, many years ago, the, he wrote something in Al-Aram, which was the major Egyptian newspaper, kind of like the New York Times is for, you know, the United States. And uh -huh. in it, he threatened, if I ever came to Egypt, and if <laughs> Baval ever came back, he threatened to cut off our heads and throw them in a ditch somewhere between Cairo and the plateau. <laughs> So congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, no, I thought it was a kind of a high honor. And yeah. when Robin and I were on the verge of going to Egypt to measure the pyramids with the Akatron, honestly, that didn't occur to me at all. Not at all. Hmm. That's go ahead. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, so my item number seven, this was, um, this was, I believe it was February. Anyway, it was in 2017 when... I went on a, tr a truly amazing trip. Now, the one thing about Zawi Hawass is that you have access that you don't get any other way with him. And we're going to see, uh, oh, number eight. Uh, let's go down to, oh, I should say about this photograph of Hawass and myself in front of the Sphinx. As I stood next to him and had a friend take the photograph, he put his arm around my back. And just before this photograph was taken, he whispered in my ear, Barbara has finally come. Now, I found that fascinating. Hmm. I'm not sure what he meant. Um, so number eight. Sounds like is, he had a premonition. Um, perhaps. Uh, he's very he's very connected. Oh, he, he is connected. Yeah, absolutely. The question is. You can't cover up what really matters without knowing what it is. Dark side versus light side. You make a choice. Yeah. So. And, and I'd like to point out that everybody in Egyptology apparently has their red lines. <laughs> like um, what Bouval does in the Orion mystery is beyond Zawi Hawass's red line. But obviously the serious point, my serious point, is beyond Bouval's red line. So, you know, I'm for the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us, the gods of Egypt. Okay, right? well, you brought it up, so how do you know he literally stopped at his self-censoring point. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, actually, I will send the proof of that um, in another item to be added to my items at the bottom of my items to Keith. Uh, here, once I'm no longer speaking, uh, you know, on on the, the program and there's a, a break where someone else is speaking. Uh, but what's interesting is there is a book that was published, I believe it was 2018, something like that, um, it was, it, it's called, I have it, it's called um, The Hall of the Gods. And this, believe it or not, this was by, I can't remember, his last name is Appleby. Uh, and he was a former uh, Army Special Ops guy in Britain. 
And believe it or not, he had figured out the serious point through an entirely different means. My means is completely simple. Okay. It's the same thing as Baval. You just take the image of the, of Orion and Sirius in the sky, which is up above in one of my items, and you, and you make it into scale and you put it on the map, uh, and you, you make the scale the same as the, um, the, the, the three pyramids, and then that gives you, you know, X marks the spot, a serious point, dig here for the great Isis temple. Um, he went, his book, The Hall of the Gods, goes through this incredibly complex process to come up with the same thing. <laughs> and when he published, guess who forced him, forced his publisher to take it down in one week to withdraw the book? What? None, none other than Bouval. And Bouval claims... Well, how could Bouval force a publisher to do anything? I'm about to tell you. Bouval got not only himself, but a whole bunch of other Egyptologists, including Graham Hancock, including Robert Temple and many others. He got them to together send complaints to the publisher that this guy Appleby, in his book, The Hall of the Gods, had plagiarized their work. Well, that's absurd. Because, because Appleby's book was about the serious point, which is specifically not included in anything Bouval does. How can you plagiarize something that's not in your own book? Mm. So anyway, it was a very vicious interaction. Okay? Do you remember the publisher? Yeah, I've got that in what else? Send Keith. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so number eight, um, for people just to click on that and read this article, um, this is about one of, I think, Carmen's greatest discovery was her work with Klaus Dona and Geoscan, um, which is a company, they do satellite scanning uh, underground uh, out of Germany, and she and Klaus Dona worked with Geoscan to um, do underground um, uh, scanning at Hawara, okay, uh, which is, of course, uh, on the west side of the Nile. And this is an article that goes into the history of how she knew that this was at Hawara, but what Carmen did was to prove it. And so, so I like to say that that what Carmen did with Klaus Dona and Geoscan, she was the Copernicus <laughs> to Herodotus's Galileo hmm. uh, for the lost labyrinth of Hawara. So there were many, there were, you know, Galileo, um, there were many other people um, who said, uh, who, who knew from Herodotus and many other ancient texts as well as some ground, some, some very shallow ground penetrating radar work that was done, that there was something there. But she showed with Geoscan and Klaus Jonah precisely what is there. And I think it's her greatest work. And that's, um, that's the number two under my eight, which you might think of as 8A, um, which is a really, I think it's probably one of the best, uh, interviews that, um, that Carmen did, and on the left, you can see what Geoscan, um, the um, animation that Geoscan was able to do. I think her first show with us on the other side of midnight was about this Hawara discovery. 
I think it was, yes. And um, and again, under your items, Richard, uh, can see, I believe it was, pulled together all of your shows that you've, of course, they're audio only, but I don't know if the if uh, Carl Carmen's items are also there. Oh, yeah, no, no, you just connect to the right archive, and there's the oh. Radio with Pictures items, yes. Okay, so all of Carmen's three or four shows with you uh, are under your items for tonight's show. Now, I want people to go back up briefly to Carmen's drawing of the High Court of Isis, which she believed was directly under the Sphinx. And I want you to imagine, just beyond the Sphinx on the other side, um, there is what's called the causeway that goes up to the Middle Pyramid. And on the far side of that causeway, not far from basically the midline of the Sphinx, now you need to scroll down to my number nine. And you go down a shaft, which is my number 9A. Zawi Hawass arranged for me to do this for $1,500 when I was there. (laughs) Just me. (laughs) Me Well, you guys were having lunch or dinner or something, and you kind of just mentioned, and he made it happen. Yes, I was sitting next to him at dinner. Um, He was was speaking to our our group that night. He was with us many, many days. He was even with us on uh, on the Nile... uh, the Nile cruise for a while. And um, so was Mrs. Anwar Sadat, by the way. It was an amazing experience. So I was sitting next to him after one of his lectures at the Mina House Hotel. And I sat down and he happened to, it was a smorgasbord, happened to get his, his plate and sit next to me to my left. Oh, just happened, yes. Just happened. Well, this is after he said Barbara has come. The Honiger has come, yes, of course. <laughs> he said Barbara has come. <laughs> um, so... I think he said Baba Ra, which means Father Light or Father of Ra. Um, I think he said Baba Ra has come in my ear. But anyway, anyway, so he, um, he, I I said, you know, Zai, uh, I'd really like to go into the tomb of Osiris. And he said, all right. (laughs) And he put down his napkin and he snapped his fingers and he said, Mustafa. And this man, this Egyptian man at the end of the table, was immediately at his side, and he said, arrange for Barbara to go into the shaft of Osiris on Saturday. And uh, I did. So that is the entrance to the shaft, and you can see that the stones just uh, above it are uh, the uh, side of the causeway. In 9A. In 9A, correct, yeah. And um, number 10... Uh, is a video of <laughs> Zawi Hawass going down into the tomb of Osiris, and um, I've I've put here the times in of the important things to see. For instance, a 3D graphic of the tomb, um, photos of the inside, um, Zawi with uh, removing the stone cover, um, and and such. Okay, and my final one is. Um, the Moses Mystery. This is a book that I'm in the middle of reading, and I'm very excited about it because I have learned that uh, from this that Akhenaten's uh, crown princess, his eldest daughter, Meritaten, uh, who became what is known as Skota, uh, and um, Scotland is named after Skota. Mm. When, the plague, when the plagues came to ancient Egypt in Amarna, Akhenaten sent his daughter away to protect her, or Nefertiti, after Akhenaten died. She was sent away with the Stone of Destiny, or Akhenaten's Coronation Stone, and that is the stone 
that has been in the coronation chair in Westminster Cathedral up until the 700th anniversary of its theft from Scotland, from Scone Palace, where it was finally returned on the 700th anniversary and will be brought out again by the Scottish Knights Templars when Scotland finally achieves her independence, which could be as early as 2024 next year. Mm. So if you go to my item, and then we'll end with that. If you go back to my items uh, number five, which is Stone of Destiny, Ancient Egypt, Scotland Synchronicities. Again, you have to download it to be able to read the text. And I'm going to give you just two other synchronicities as to how I got into all this. And um, they are uh, detailed in that uh, in that uh, synchronicity. Um, the first one I'm going to mention is that, believe it or not, um, when I was at Stanford in Austria, which was in my junior year at Stanford University, when, what was I, about 20, 21 years old, um, I was there for, for six months. And um, one of our uh, field trips where all 80 of us students with a chaperone went, and this was during the Cold War, uh, we were in Berlin. And we went across Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin to the uh, East Berlin Museum um, for a tour. And we got in there, and the tour guide took us up to the opening, which is Nebuchadnezzar's Gate. And then he took us for about an hour off to the right into, to see various, various different artifacts. And then we went back into the lobby, into the entrance, and, and uh, we were told by our chaperone, okay, you've got a half an hour to see anything else you want in the museum, but then you've got to be back to the bus or you're going to be stuck here in Communist East Berlin. And so, uh, you know, we were highly motivated to be back at the bus in a half an hour. So the moment I heard that, something, it was like I became instantly guided, you know, like a drone, <laughs> like a human drone. And I literally raced. I went off to my left. He had taken us only off to the right, into the rooms to the right. I went off into the rooms to the left. And it was like a maze. It's a huge museum. And I ran through the room like I knew what I was doing, like I was being guided by a satellite or something. And I ended up out of breath in this very small room in front of the famous bust of Nefertiti. Mm. In a plexiglass or glass case, I was the only person in this little room. And surrounding the stand that the bust was on at my eye level were all these little um, scarabs that were like, you know, blue-green scarabs. And I was transfixed. Egyptian beetles. Did I what? Egyptian beetles. Yeah, the yes, the Egyptian beetle scarabs that are, you know, cut in half, and then they're basically seals. They were signature seals. Mm -hmm. So there was some kind of download that happened there. All right, now I'm going to fast forward to 1980 where I was in the headquarters of the Reagan-Bush senior campaign in Washington, D.C. And when I first got there, I had worked at the Hoover Institution at Stanford to put myself through the parapsychology and consciousness studies program with Dr. Martin Anderson, who happened to be tapped by Reagan to be his chief domestic policy advisor in the rest wing of the White House. So I was tapped and went with him like coattails. And I end up at the headquarters of the Reagan-Bush senior campaign in the summer uh, into the fall of 1980, just before the election and, and leading up to the election in November of 1980. 
in November 4th, 1980. And as soon as I got there, you know, you, you're, you don't know anybody, but your boss, who's also there, who brought me from Stanford's Hoover Institution. And so I started meeting people, and there was only one person. I was drawn to him like iron filings to a magnet. And he was drawn to me like iron filings to a magnet. And we knew that, and we couldn't wait to find out why. So it was pretty soon. We went to this beautiful place with a revolving high restaurant, and we went to the bar. And over a drink, I learned that he was the son of the so-called amateur archaeologist who was the first ever to use computers. And what he did, his last, my friend was Michelle Smith, that's a man. He was, he was working on the Bush senior side of the campaign. And his father was the first to ever use computers. And what he used the computers for in archaeology was to piece together Akhenaten's temple to the autumn. Oh. Okay. So my whole life has been focused on ancient Egypt, the Sirius Point, and Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and Skota, after whom Scotland is named, and Skota's stone, the Stone of Destiny, which I know was the coronation stone, otherwise known as the Stone of Authority, or Ma'at stone, the goddess Ma'at, the goddess of truth and justice, on which the pharaoh had to stand when he was, when he was crowned. Now, the official story is it was returned in 1996 to Scotland. Do we know that's true? Oh, yes, it was, it was returned, but it was, of course, not the, not the real stone. The real stone was withheld by the Bishop of Scone in 1296. Ah, okay, so. When uh, Edward I, the Hammer of the Scot, a truly brutal and, and vicious English king, sent his army up to get the stone, uh, which, which has become the glue, if you will, that binds Scotland to England in what's called Great Britain. So if Scotland becomes independent, sorry, folks, no more Great Britain, just Britain, just England. And, mm. and Ireland and Wales. Wow. So they they want to become independent, and I think that they will next year. Fascinating. Well, we're basically a couple of minutes from the top of the hour and, you know, sliding into Sunday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. When we come back, we're going to talk with Georgia, Georgia Lambert, our resident metaphysician is on tap, and we're going to be joined by Sam Asmonagich and Ron Gerbron, has a couple of things that he's going to uh, bequeath us with. So without further ado, let me uh, just tell you that you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Elglin. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. It's now the witching hour in the land of enchantment. I wonder where that term came from, the, the change of midnight to a new day. You know, when the Sirius on the, I believe it's the uh, 12 days after the winter solstice, it literally crosses the meridian, a.m., anti-meridian, p.m., post-meridian. Anyway, maybe I should ask George about that. She did have an answer to the earlier speculations that I was musing about in terms of why the pyramids were on the west side of the Nile, why Carmen in Kintia's really wonderful banner uh, is titled as Westing the Nile. So without further ado, Georgia, our resident metaphysician, what is the answer? Hello. I just have a little bit to add to this mix, uh, just to answer your point, Richard, that the idea of going west was in many different cultures, including the Celts, to go west meant to die, because the lands of, of women, the lands of the undying, were in the west, which is where Atlantis was. Oh. To, to Egypt. So the idea of Atlantis disappearing under the waves symbolized something that's gone, something that's no longer here, something that's in other world. And so to go west uh, meant to die or to make that transition. Hmm. Well, I'm glad we cleared that up. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing I wanted to, to add to this mix about going west and stuff, there's this is this is rather curious. There's a little book called The Dayspring of Youth that was written anonymously in 1931. Uh, there is some speculation that it was written by Nicholas Rorick, who was, of course, uh, a mystical painter, but also uh, an occultist along with his wife. Hello. Anyway, in this little book, it talks a lot about the Atlantean connection with Egypt. And it talks about that during the um, time of sun worship, there was a particular potent otherworldly force that was connected to a yet undiscovered altar in Egypt. And that uh, this was from the Atlantean priesthood originally. 
hmm. and and that um, at one point during the the age of sun worship, it was temporarily moved from Egypt to Glastonbury. I know Maria will be interested in that. Um, it was moved to Glastonbury, but it couldn't hold, so it went back to Egypt. But it formed a polarity with another PowerPoint in Tibet. This is the Himalayan uh, focus in Tibet. So you've got Egypt at, uh, as heart and the focus in Tibet as head. And the story is that just as um, Egypt's point was temporarily moved to Glastonbury, that in this next age, it will be permanently moved west to Glastonbury, while the uh, Himalayan point, and, and again, this was written in 1931, uh, the Himalayan point would be uh, moved west, way west, to the Rocky Mountain chain in the United States and Canada. By the way, someone is typing. If they could please mute. <clears throat> no names mentioned. And and the interesting the interesting thing about that is that of course when the communists came into Tibet and took over, so many of the monks, uh, you know, got out of town, so to speak, and many of them uh, have wound up in Colorado and the Rocky Mountain uh, chain. Uh, oh various various different sects of Buddhism have touched down and and uh, have now bases there and home plates there of the uh, trans Himalayan teaching. So the idea of going west uh, has all kinds of different layers to it. Indeed, my God. So you never got a chance to meet Carmen or, or talk to her, I guess. I did not. I didn't have that pleasure, unfortunately. What a shame. What a shame. Again, it would have been two people in the room I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for. So, <laughs> um, But she was really in, I mean, her first work that hit, you know, kind of made waves was this uh, Angels and Archetypes, the whole idea of the divine feminine and ancient cultures, particularly ancient Egypt. Obviously, you have some perspectives on that. What do, you, what, what do you think? Well, of course, we know that some early civilizations like the Minoan were matriarchal, but in esoteric tradition, it's said that the Atlantean civilization was a matriarchal society, and that the spiritual guides and teachers of humanity that were in physical form at that time, um, the the, the, quote, masters or adepts took feminine form. And, of course, that was then. We've gone through a period of patriarchal uh, society. Hmm. And, now as, and now as we move into this next stage, it'll be the balance of both. Fascinating. I, I don't want to put Tim on the spot, but, you know, since you kind of know where, where, where um, uh, Carmen was going with the New Atlantis, does feminism, the ancient original figure in the new series at all? Hint, hint. Well, Rich, again, I, I honestly, I cannot give away the plot because of two reasons. Firstly, I was only involved at the beginning, so I do not know what evolved. And secondly, uh, I'm not sure what stage the, the production is at at the moment. But certainly the, those themes run all the way through. And obviously, it's a sequel. 
but in some ways it's like a prequel. It's it's almost going back in time. What was there before uh, what we see as ancient Egypt? Hmm. So maybe that gives you a few pointers. <laughs> okay. Very nicely done. Um, I, I take it, uh, Keith, that Sam is not with us yet. So if he's not, and you'll let me know, you'll type something in the little window that I look at. We never used to do a radio where you're watching computer screens and windows and all that. Um, what I like to do is I like to turn to Maria, um, who, of course, has also been in touch with Sam. There's this whole, you know, kind of beyond-the-box community of researchers and investigators and thinkers and visionaries. And uh, Maria is, as fate would have it, when we're doing the show, in the next few weeks, she is gathering uh, with another old friend of mine, uh, um, Carrie, um, what's her, I can't remember Carrie's last name. It'll come to me. Anyway, and they're Cassidy. going to... Cassidy. Cassidy, Carrie, thank you. Thank you, dear. So uh, Maria, who is a dowser and an out-of-the-box archaeologist, and her father, you know, ex was an extraordinary archaeologist in Britain, and that's how I met Maria, was through her dad, who appeared on one of my early shows, and he was so happy that uh, apparently we, we, we obviously set something in motion, and so Maria has been with us many times. She is going to Egypt in like a month and a half or so, and she is going to be conducting two sets, well, actually three sets uh, of very interesting experiments, one for, well, a couple for the Enterprise mission and one for Barbara. So why don't we bring Barbara back? And Barbara, why don't you talk to Maria about the serious point and what she, with her hyperdimensional proclivities, i.e. the dowsing, may be able to discern of what's buried under the sands of Egypt even now. Well, can you hear me? We can hear you. Is Maria on? Maria's on. Oh, hi, Maria. <laughs> Unmuting helps. Oh, hello. Hello. <laughs> Good morning. Hi. Have you hey, had you your know, tea? You already heard from me. Absolutely. I've sent, I've, I've sent um, I don't know, I don't know if Maria's already heard um, my presentation in the past hour. Um, I'd like to know if, if she's been able to hear that. No, I've been no. in bed. Sorry. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, um, well then, then you have to give her the elevator pitch. Well, I sent Maria <laughs> the summary that I read at the beginning of my segment. So she has that. And um, uh, we, we really need to, Maria and I need to work this out one-on-one. -on -one. We haven't had a chance to do that. Um, but my first thought is that one of Maria's items, and maybe she could, you know, tell me if this rings true. Um, it's an ancient Egyptian pendant um, that can be used for dousing, or maybe was back then used for dousing. And um, that a pendant like that could be used for map dousing um, to get information. Um, when I send Maria the stars, the, the photograph of the um, Orion constellation and Sirius and their relative um, distance from each other, uh, and a map uh, of, you know, a, a, uh, an aerial photograph of the Giza Plateau. Um, and then um, the, I would think that the 
the, the dousing uh, pendant um, would be able to provide information. Yeah, Maria's item number seven is an Egyptian plum bob. The, it's yeah. gorgeous. Where did you get it? Wow. Well, that's that's not a pendulum that you use for information dowser, dowsing, as Barbara has said. That pendulum was found in the 1930s, and it's a pendulum. In the 1930s, by some French diviners, uh, dowsers, that were also archaeologists digging in the Valley of the Kings. Wow. It was found over the heart, or the heart chakra, of some mummies in the Valley of the Kings. So they notice that it's all over the artwork in different temples. So it's a pendulum that emits a Pacific frequency of one of the esoteric colors of the sun called huh. the negative green. Huh. And the negative green is, is a very powerful earth force. The two diviners were called Chomari and Abelazal. They were very famous and went down in Dowsin history because Chomari was filling an object with the negative green and was found one week later in his laboratory mummified and it went down in Dowsin history. So the, so the negative green is said to help in mummification in ancient Egypt, but also to release small amounts and to take out the negative green in the physical body. So that pendulum is all about healing and working with the frequencies of the sun, of which there are 12 to 13. Hmm. It looks like it's made of gold, right? Or sheathed in gold. It's, 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 it's solid gold? Yes, it's, it's it can be plated, it can be gold-plated, and commonly these days I have uh, three different types of Karnak pendulum. I have one in copper, one in silver, and one gold-plated. It also, around the top, the taper top, it looks like the infamous Dejed pillar. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, all the Egyptian pendulums are like that. You have the Isis pendulum, which is a very healing pendulum. Again, many people, they, they come in two parts. You, when you have these pendulums, you must unscrew them so they're in two or three parts because they're constantly emitting these esoteric colors of the sun. So it's only when you use them do you screw them together. Oh, so you to have make to kind of de desensitize them or uncouple them from the field. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And uh, and Georgia was speaking earlier about the east uh, east west uh, of how the Egyptians laid out their landscape. They also looked for east west flowing lays and earth currents. And the Great Pyramid, it has been noted, is set above two lines that flow east to west, and they're called the Hartman Grid. And the Hartman Grid surrounds the planet. It's like a big fishnet, uh, about 2.5 meters wide, discovered by Ernest Hartman in the 1950s. So I think that's in one of uh, my pictures, picture number four. It shows the Great Pyramid precisely aligned to the Hartman grid. Now, Carmen, in her research, said that it was beneath an aquifer. And this aquifer helped to generate energy. All ancient sites throughout the ancient world are beneath that type of groundwater aquifer. But also another type of aquifer as well that's generated water deep within the earth, independent of rainfall. When those two aquifers come together, it generates a lot of electromagnetic energy. Hmm. Okay, so talk about your expedition, i.e. tour, 
that you're leaving toward the end of March, I believe, uh, for how long, where you're going, how people can join, and some of the uh, discussions we've had about your kind of sidebar expeditionary work that you're going to do for Enterprise. Yes. I mean, I'm leaving on the March, well, this tour begins on March the 29th, and you can find out more about that at projectcamelot.com. Uh, we have the itinerary there, but it's going to be quite exciting. We've got private access to the King's Chamber, the Queen's Chamber, the subterranean chamber in the King's Pyramid. We've got private access to the Serapium as well, and we're going to start off in the pyramid area of Cairo, which is always great fun. And then we go to Saqqara. And then we're going to go on a Nile cruise and go to all of the temples along the Nile, from Hathor's Temple to Komombo Temple. So it's going to be over 10 days. And that's when we can, at the pyramids, for example, or as uh, Richard always says, within the torsion field of ancient sites, Give an emission, uh, I will give a transmission rather to see if the uh, experiment that we're going to do will work and be received by other members. Well, we need to kind of background people who might be new to the audience what we're doing. Last year, around Christmas of uh, 2020, was it, no, it was 2021, I believe, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing how time flies. Um, we set up this set of experiments where there was a certain handheld radio which was broadcast on two frequencies, 144 megahertz and 432 megahertz. And as part of the continuing experiments, this started out in terms of radio transmissions from a private observatory in northern Arizona. And we sent a set of coded transmissions containing all kinds of information uh, toward the moon. And we got back on the radios, recorded signals that could be interpreted as connecting the moon and Stonehenge, at which point we called you and we said, Maria, very, very, very dangerous for me to say Maria, uh, would you like to take one of these radios and go both into Stonehenge and in the environs around it and broadcast another set of coded transmissions containing things like sacred geometry and certain frequencies and certain tonal patterns and even some Morse code, and then would you record the results? And we would record simultaneously at different places around the Earth if the if Stonehenge itself, at some hyperdimensional etheric level, could retransmit, because the radio itself could never reach the radio's here in the United States, 6,000 plus miles away. So we were looking to test whether the monument itself could vibrate the torsion field in a way that could then be reinterpreted by the radios as an EM signal, and it turned out it could. And all kinds of meaningful information uh, was, was obtained, and we did many programs where we did translations and long discussions and all that, um, and kind of pooled our recordings. And we had people interpreting, like David Sarita, some of the transmissions. There even seemed to be some Morse involved. Anyway, we had hoped at that time that you'd be able to continue this test transmission. 
we called the ET transmissions, not specifying who the ETs were, uh, when you were on the Giza Plateau and or in the Great Pyramid itself. And that, because of COVID, had to be put on hold. And now, at the end of March of 2023, you will literally be on the plateau with the proper radio, doing the proper time transmissions and recording, and then you'll do it going down the Nile, geographically speaking, or up the Nile, in terms of the current, as you go through and pass through these other ancient sacred sites. And I know from measurements that I conducted in, uh, uh, you know, Mexico, that you don't have to be in or even on a pyramid to elicit a very strong resonant response. You just have to kind of be within the bubble. And the bubble can be miles across. So regardless of whether you can do a lot of this within the sites themselves, being nearby within a few miles is going to give us an extraordinary sweep of new hyperdimensional resonant information that we came so close to getting. Um, because way back when, when I first met Carmen, uh, not physically, but, you know, by means of coast, um, I told her about the Accutron measurements, and she volunteered to take an Accutron and the system, the computer system, the uh, computer codes, the algorithm, the software, and take it to the Giza Plateau. And I did the dumbest damn thing I've ever done. I said, no, I would like Robin and me to do it because we were on the verge of getting access ourselves to the plateau and to the pyramid. And to this day, I rue it that I did not take her up on her offer because our plans through, you know, dark chicanery fell through. They were literally stabbed in the back. We were not permitted to do what we wanted to do. Could not even get to Egypt, let alone get in. And so Carmen's offer, which would have been an extraordinary additional insight in terms of uh, Robin and me going around and measuring other sacred sites like Stonehenge and Abery and the pyramids in Mexico and in Central America, it would have been stunningly complete. And because I was too damn stubborn and wanted to do it myself, lesson to self, do not turn down an offer if it is honestly made. And so Carmen could have carried out a remarkable experiment. And now, if we can resemble some resources to equip Maria with an Accutron, because she has the computer, she's got the, she'll have the software. If we can get her an Accutron, because as you may or may not know, mine broke years ago, right after measuring the eclipse in 2017, and I have not had the funds, Enterprise has not had the funds to replace it. So there is a donate button on the uh, other side of Midnight site. If you want to help us equip Maria with a way to finish the job that Carmen volunteered to carry out, you can do it because an extraordinary, absolutely bona fide emissary who can do the job because she's demonstrated that she can mix ancient high-tech and modern high-tech and come out with extraordinary new information. If we get her the resources, i.e. an Accutron, then we will be able to finish the job that Carmen was to begin.
and don't everybody speak at once? <laughs> yes, well, that will be, I would be more than willing to do that for to get the appropriate results. See, now, one of the two things you can do that will straddle the line between Barbara's work and our work is you can douse the serious point, and you can also measure it with the Accutron. You can also broadcast from that point, and of all those modalities, we will record something. I don't know what we will record, but it's going to definitely be something very important. Uh, someone's asking me how much is an Accutron. It's several hundred dollars. They become kind of priceless keepsakes because Bulova stopped making them many decades ago, and they have to be fine-tuned because the wires inside are like finer than hair, and if they're properly improperly treated, those little wires can break, which is what happened to mine. And so it's a, it's a several hundred dollar, maybe up to $500 item. But if you take care of them, uh, they have little mercury batteries. They last for weeks and weeks, months and months. And you simply plug them in through a box you get to connect to the computer and you can record the uh, 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 signals. And I guarantee you, based on our experience at Stonehenge and other places, including the pyramids in Mexico and Central America, Maria, you're going to absolutely be mind-boggled by what you're going to be able to record both outside and inside the Great Pyramid itself. Yes, it's exciting. And I must talk with Barbara about this serious point because it all sounds quite fascinating and I'll certainly do my bits. Well, there may not be a trace. Is there any trace on the surface, Barbara? Is, is there anything to see or any landmarks? Did, did you and Carmen kind of collaborate on what you might look for visually? Uh, no, because it's under... It's, uh, it's, that's very interesting. It, it's really, 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 really buried. It's, it's either buried under the sand. In other words, when you, when you lay the, the star map over the three pyramids, there are two orientations you can lay it. Either the Sirius point is out in the desert, further west, or it's in Cairo. Hmm. So that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm hoping that Maria can use her incredible dousing uh, ability um, with a pendulum or however she does it uh, with what I will send. Um, and by the way, Maria, I don't know if you noticed from my bio, but my my maternal grandfather, who died just before I was born and in front of my mother and triggered my birth, I never met him, but he was an amazing dowser. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's well, amazing. Well, obviously runs in yes, the family. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Richard. I said it runs in the family, obviously. Well, I'm not a dowser that I know of. No, but you're connected. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't be into all this stuff, and you wouldn't have that first damn degree from JFK. Come on. And yeah. those synchronicities, you think they just fall out of the ether because you're just a, you know, kind of a stump? No. No. <laughs> and my grandfather is very important in my life. Phenomenal synchronicities with him, even though I never met him in person. Okay, um, uh, I, I have news. We've had mm -hmm. a, a volunteering donation, uh, a pledge of so far $200 toward the Accutron from our audience. 
and I want to put that out there. Again, the, the website has a link in the upper left. I have no idea where it is on your phone, but it's not hidden. Uh, it's easy. It goes through PayPal. They're totally, totally, totally on the up and up. Do not be afraid of PayPal. It's because of Elon Musk we have PayPal, and because of Elon Musk, we're going to talk about tomorrow night that we're going to have stunning confirmation by nine tourists of what's on the moon. So, so Richard, you need to let people know what an Accutron, what you believe it. Oh, an Accutron is a wristwatch that was created by Bulova back in 1965. Very briefly, uh, NASA scarfed them up and sent them into orbit in spacecraft to keep time and on astronauts' wrists to keep time until they found inexplicably they don't keep time. They resonate a tuning fork, and because of the change in the background physics, changing the inertia of the tuning fork, their timekeeping is lousy. But they're incredibly sophisticated, hyperdimensional torsion field detectors of the fact that the changing field changes mass and inertia in three dimensions, and these sites give off, amplify the HD dimensional energy is not the right word. It's more like information. But they basically resonate to the feel of the pyramids or sacred sites, and they manifest with 3D physics what Maria can sense with her own connectivity and hyperdimensional consciousness. Okay, but my question was, what does it cost? Oh, several hundred dollars, like up to around 500 bucks, depending upon... Okay. you got to get a good one because there are, you know cheap ones and fakes and all that. We know who to go to. We just have not had the wherewithal okay, to okay, replace so it. Okay, so I'm going to match the 200. We need another 100. Well, it's more like 500. So no, far, you've got, so you far, have 200 So far, already. we've got 200. Okay. You have, two, you have 200. I said I would put in 200. Oh, so now it. we're up to four. Fantastic. We're within shooting distance. Okay. Fantastic. We need another hundred, everybody. Yes, we need at least another hundred. We probably should have another hundred on top of that in case the prices have gone up. I have not looked in a while. I couldn't bear to look because I can't afford it. So, anyway, you know, inflation, everything. Well, is... it's always good to give people a target. Yeah. I would say in the five, $600 range, we should get exactly. And then, of course, we need tax. You know, it's, it, it's not going to come, you know, without a tax depending upon where it comes from. And there are fees, I think, depending upon who these people, who they are, there are surcharges. In other words, I would see, to be safe, we need around $600. And I'm a very good shopper because Robin was an exquisite shopper and I watched what she did. So I will get the best damn you know, value that we can. But we need to equip Maria. And then we've got enough time, Maria, that I can tutor you in how to do it and you literally can do it at Stonehenge as a test before you leave. I mean, it's very exciting, and I think this is a, a target that we can reach. So I think this is going to be very doable and will lead to some amazing results, discussions, and finds. Okay, Tim so is I'm asking. I'm very excited. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you're – well, I know if you're excited, it's going to get done. Tim is asking a very important question. Which model Accutron? Uh, we've used the space view, which has no face. You can see the actual guts of the watch, the tuning fork, the batteries, the little coils that resonate the tuning fork, which is made of steel, which is very important. 
Steel is a uh, hyperdimensional metal. It's made of, you know, iron and carbon. And carbon, of course, is very hyperdimensional. That's why life is made of carbon, etc., etc. So, yeah, it will be a space view so you can actually see what's going on inside as it's doing its thing. And someone's typing. <laughs> okay, we are we are uh, close. To, oh, well, we actually passed the bottom of the hour. I'll tell you what. Let me just skip the uh, the break at the bottom of the hour, since it doesn't really matter. It's under our control. It's not what we call in the business a hard break. Um, Tim, have you got any questions besides that one? Well, no. I was just in the background checking on Accutron website, and uh, I saw a rather nice nice watch on there called the. Accutron astronauts. No, 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 no. Oh, I know. That's a modern. That's a modern <laughs> knockoff. It's not the original. Really? This is a specially. It requires an expert. <clears throat> I'm the expert. So no, do not get distracted by modern knockoffs, please. So we want I the space view. I think it's the space view two fourteen is the actual number. It was brought out in 1965 and was so crazy. Is NASA, I mean, Bulova, when they created this brand new technology, they advertised it as the first new breakthrough development in watch keeping, in timekeeping in watches in like 300 years. And it was. And so NASA, wanting to be at the cutting edge, got a whole bunch of space views. The CIA got space views and put them in the Corona spacecraft, which is why... The early Corona spacecraft did not work. This is back engineering. And then they all quietly took them out because they found out that the damn things did not keep time accurately because they were responding to the field, which is constantly changing. And, of course, NASA would never admit that. They just took them out quietly and substituted uh, Omegas, I think, or some other major watch brand which is not susceptible. It was the unique tuning for combination that makes them the perfect detector of the torsion field, particularly around major sacred sites. And I have years of data archived from when we put it all together and we do real science, which again requires more funding. Can't do science without funding, but we have preserved all the archives of all our visits and Maria's, we will add to that archive. And who knows, you know, when the new book is published, Torsion Fields and Accutrons will be a major part of it. And we'll probably get uh, someone to, willing, to be willing to advance sufficient monies to begin the computer tabulations and correlations that any science like this deserves. Oh, I just wish Carmen was around to see us close the loop. Darn. Richard, could you extrapolate Did you measure the what happens when you... What was that, Tim? I'm just sorry, Maria. I was just asking very quickly. Could you just take us through a few bullet points of how the watch actually connects to the laptop and what you see? Do you see a graph? Do you see... Oh, yeah. Uh, you have a real-time graph, uh, which is shown on the screen of a laptop. I actually wanted to boil it down to like a smartphone. Um, and I don't know whether the commercial manufacturer who provides the software has developed a, a smartphone version. The reason it's available for a laptop is because the software is basically used by that very small cadre of specialists who know as watchmakers how to fix Accutrons. 
and not everybody can. It's a very, very delicate, you know, surgery, like brain surgery. So not a lot of people can do it, and what they do sometimes does not work. So you have to, again, my grandmother would say, if you don't know your furs, know your furrier. you got to know your Accutron purveyor and the guy or gal who knows how to fix them. And what they do is they use this software to help fix the Accutron. Well, I inverted the idea and used the software to measure the anomalies in the Accutron frequency, which is around 360, but it can vary by a minute amount as the background field changes. And then at the sacred sites, uh, I recorded the Accutron vibrating as fast as 900 to 1200 cycles per second when norm is 360 or as low as two or three cycles per minute. And that's measuring, obviously, the change of the inertia of the tuning fork, which is a measure of the energy or consistency or information content of the torsion field, which modulates inertia in our three-dimensional reality. It's a stunning sensor. It's not the only one, but it's certainly one of the most reliable. And I got the idea many, many years ago when Brian De Palma, uh, I'm sorry, Brian De Palma's brother, Bruce De Palma, back in the 1970s, was trying to figure out a way of measuring a, the field. He called it the odd field around rotating and processing masses. And he decided one day, and I never had a chance to ask him what gave him the brainstorm. This was in 7071. In his laboratory, he put an Accutron above his experiment in processing matter. And then he put a West clock plugged into the wall as a control. And he measured the change in the frequency of the Accutron, not by computer, but by literally watching the time differential between the clock face on the Accutron and the clock face on the West clock. And the West clock was plugged into the grid, so it was maintaining a standard 60-cycle uh, control, you know, controlled by the generators and the grid, you know, miles and tens and hundreds of miles away from his, his laboratory, whereas the Accutron was responding to the field, and that's when he measured this incredible difference between time apparently flowing in a processing rotating mass, ergo the first three laws of hyperdimensional physics, rotation, 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 and a background constant field determined by the grid, the whole continental grid. And then when we developed the technology to measure this with a digital laptop, I adopted the software to turn the uh, ID around and using the software to monitor the frequency, measure the inertia of the tuning fork and how it was changed by being exposed to certain situations up to and including the field amplification around pyramids, around sacred sites, and at Stonehenge. You should really ask Sam to take some readings there as well. I, he wants me to come over there, and I've been damn insistent I wanted to do it myself. And I think I've, you know, written a memo. I'm going to let Sam, when he joins us, he's not joined us yet. I'm not quite sure why. Um, but I'm going to let him, you know, do it in absentia 
because I have no idea when I'm going to be able to travel to uh, Bosnia, and it, it needs to be done. And it needs to be done in a systematic way. We now know there's this weird radio beam uh, emanating from the top of the Bosnian pyramid. We need a drone so that you can take the Akatron and have it hover at various levels above the pyramid. So you measure the frequency. That was going to require some kind of uh, uh, acoustic damping because the watch is very sensitive to being bumped. And so you have to be very careful. And so you have to design basically a shock-mounting cradle if you're going to take it up above the pyramid in a drone. So that's, again, more funding. So, you know, there's all kinds of things that we can do that will amplify, pun intended, this research. But bottom line, it requires funding, which, of course, is why we're going to have Barbara back on tomorrow night to talk about her gift of the bean painting, uh, the, the print, and the 12, uh, 24, I'm sorry, signatures of original NASA astronauts and how we're using that as a fundraising tool so we can fund not only this research and a lot more, but also how to get it out to the general public and the media so it makes the change in the paradigm it's now obviously time to make. Uh, thank you, Richard. I didn't know I was on tomorrow night, too. You do now. <laughs> See, it's dangerous to be a member of the Enterprise family. I, I don't want to take the time tonight to talk about the painting, because tomorrow night's the moon and trying all that. I'd like to keep focused on, you know, the legacy of Carmen's amazing work. And the idea that Maria can be there and measure with three different modalities your damn serious point after all these years. I mean, to me, it's elegant closing of the circle, and it, we got the perfect person to do it. Right. I, I don't know yet. Uh, Marie and I have to communicate back and forth. I don't know uh, what could be done there, but we're going we're gonna to explore that. Super. Okay, who has any stories about... Uh, Carmen that need to be told tonight that we haven't gotten to. I've already told you I made the dumbest mistake of my life by not letting her take the Akatron system to Egypt, so I, I can't, you know, be more forthcoming than that. Anybody got a dumber story? <laughs> well, I've got a really good story. Oh, cool, cool. Okay, I'll try to keep it quick, because I've been talking a lot. we got 20 minutes, about... give or take. Okay. Well... <clears throat> Okay, somebody else talk while I remember what I was going to tell you. Cynthia, what yeah. about talking about the uh, matriarchal and patriarchal sort of differences? Oh, Georgia. Yeah. And also Georgia. And uh, I think Maria, everybody probably can join in with that one. Thank you, Timothy. Just a suggestion. Notice Cynthia. they're all so shy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I remember. No. I remember. Probably what all on mute. What I would like. Yeah, well, what I would like to say, we have got a massive lunar alignment coming up uh, in 2025, which I think is going to be a really big focus point for uh, the feminine energies of the planets and ancient sites. And it should be very spectacular. The last time it happened was 18.61 years ago. So I think we're building up to this kind of energetic point. And Rick Levine uh made the point that this March... Oh, that's gonna, right, the March window. When you're going to be in Egypt, uh, Maria, 
uh, that March, the astrology is lining up for some big fireworks. Or to use his term, something yes. really big is going to hit the fan. <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of dynamic stuff going on at the end of March, beginning of April. Yes, and, and certainly when we look to the ancient sites, the Moon's Metonic Cycle, whether it was at Stonehenge or Avebury or Silbury Hill and elsewhere besides, it was always geared up for the Moon's most northerly moonrise or the Moon's most southerly moonrise. And that's the cycle that's coming up. And one of the major sites was Kalanish on the Isle of Lewis, where I think it's the most spectacular in the world that people can go and see because it aligns to the... If you imagine there's a, a mountain range just by Kalanish Stone Circle in the outline of a woman's body on the ground, it's called Sleeping Beauty. And the moon in its most southerly at a northerly altitude will always be the most beautiful honey-coloured moon. And it goes along the body of the sleeping goddess then turns around to be the exact centre of Kalanish Stone Circle. And if a person was stood on a very small bit of elevated ground at the Stone Circle and put their arms outstretched, they'd physically look like they were touching either side of the moon. Oh, my. It's, it's extraordinary. And that was discovered by Margaret Curtis, who I met and went uh, was working with in 2006. But more than that, if you're stood at a particular point at Kalanish, as the atmospherics change, the person in the moon, when they put their hands forward, their shadow touches right at the end of the megalithic avenue. And so people were bathed in this moonlight, then bang, as soon as the shadow goes, it goes jet black because the moon suddenly sinks and it's most sudden moon set. Hmm. And wasn't it Kalanish that was used as the prototype for the Stone Circle in the Outlander series? Uh, yes, it was. I mean, it, it was saved Kalanish because it was in peat bog and everybody thought it was a very small stone circle until they started digging the peat away and then hmm. realized they were giant megaliths. Hmm. I've just received some very disturbing news. Kinthea has typed, a space view is now between 3000 and $5,000. Talk hmm. about inflation. So what we might want to do is to package up... Who was that? I heard a voice. I didn't hear a voice, I guess. Anyway, what we might want to do is to package up the one I've got there's nothing wrong with it except, I think, one of those little fine wires that only a dedicated expert watchmaker can fix and have it repaired, which would probably be in the range of what I was quoting before. Apparently, inflation in space views has gone through the roof into orbit, and I'm just wondering if we've been contributing because maybe a lot of people heard about them through what we've been doing and talking about for many, many years. <clears throat> Anyway, uh, let's get back to Barbara. Barbara, you remember your story, right? Unmuting. Oh, can you hear me? We can hear you now. Yeah, I did remember. Now, I've, 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 said, I've told this story on your program, and it's very brief. But if, uh, if you may recall from a couple of programs we've done, um, it, was, it was one of your programs with Carmen. I don't know which one of the four uh, programs that are in your items, 
Um, but it was one of those four shows where I happened to be listening before I met Carmen, of course. And um, it was a show in which she was talking about Hawara. So it must have been the first one. She was talking about Hawara. And she was talking about Klaus Dona and using the company's geoscans, um, you know, high-technology satellite, ground-penetrating quantum radar. Uh, and um, she happened to mention, or maybe you asked, but she happened to mention a couple of examples um, of their successes. You know, how do we know that it works? And she said, well, um, because they use something that has to do with quantum mechanics, um, that they are able to uh, set it somehow, um, their um, algorithm, so that they're able to tell if it's silver or gold or water or wood or whatever, all the way down to six kilometers at different, different levels. And she happened to use as one of her two or three examples that they have found gold in Lake Baikal. And mm. I about fell off my chair because my my late husband, Dr. Richard St. Clair Murray, his paternal grandfather was the head of the, until 1994, top secret Siberian Railroad Mission, where the British, he was a British Army captain and a railroad engineer. He was in charge of the railroad um, mission to meet up with Admiral Kolchak and he took about 40 boxcars of soldiers and weapons and ammunition and his mission secret mission was to meet up with Admiral Kolchak who had been the head of the Tsar of Russia's uh, Navy who became the head of, of, the, of the White Army um, after the Russian Revolution, and his job, his mission was to meet up, join forces, and go up to Moscow and defeat Trotsky's Red Army before the snows, before the winter snows set in, and put the Tsar back on the throne. And because the Bolsheviks learned of his railroad mission coming 5,000 miles across from Siberia, that they, uh, that they killed the Shah and his family at Katlinburg. My husband's grandfather, and we know this from his diaries, which I have inherited from my husband, um, that uh, when when they got to in Katlinburg, uh, the blood was still wet on the walls where the Tsar and his family were killed. And so he then met with Kolchek, who said, that's okay, I'll be Tsar. Let's go ahead. And Richard's grandfather is the person who said, no, that's not my mission. I'm taking my marbles, and I'm going back 5,000 miles. But before he did, he took some boxcars of the gar of the Tsar's gold and jewels that Kolchek had. And somewhere between Katlinburg and when my husband's grandfather got back to uh, to the um, to China. He had to walk across China eventually. Um, but the um, the Bolshevik trains of the Bolsheviks were chasing them, and I figured out by looking at a map that he had to have the only place that he could have gotten rid of the gold, because by the time he got back east, it had disappeared. Um, and I had figured out that he probably had to simply dump it into Lake Baikal. Oh, my gosh. 
And in fact, Putin has gone down in a submersible to see the gold. See, I know of no way within current physics that you could do this as Carmen was describing it, unless this company, this group has developed other torsion field detectors, which are very elemental specific because of inertia, nuclear properties, etc., etc., even through miles of overburden, rock and sand and sediments and stuff like that. Well, yes, and um, Carmen did tell me that uh, Klaus Dona, that it's, that it's a proprietary. That, oh, are, that covers a multitude of <clears throat> secrets. Yeah. Right, right. And it, that they apparently use military-level GPS. Okay. See, the whole black deep state ops situation is there's all these technologies, like the technology that could have alerted those 25 thousand Turkey and uh, and uh, Syrian citizens that there was an earthquake coming so they could mm -hmm. leave. It's all been sealed up in archives and we've been told, remember I've told on the show many times that I was told by a member of the deep state that they would rather see an American city vanish under a nuclear terrorist attack than reveal the physics. Well, without those physics, we are still primitives. We're still wandering around in the dark, you know, blindfolded and we don't need to, and that's what this coming paradigm revolution has to be all about. Right. So that's my Carmen story. Um, Carmen, through your program, your first program with Carmen, about her findings at Hawara with Clastona and the Geoscan secret technology, um, I, I got verification that um, Richard's grandfather dumped the Tsar's gold in Lake Baikal. Wow. <laughs> Richard, I, ha I have a kind of off-the-wall question for you. Oh, well, um, it's a proper place. Go for it. <laughs> you're, you're talking about, you know, different technologies that depict the fluctuations in, in the field. Yep. Um, how about random number generators like they used at Princeton? Well, yeah, of course. You just need a program that tracks the randomization, and that's how we found out through... Uh, what's his name? Dean Radin's work. Uh, and who was the guy at Princeton? Rogers? I can't forget their names. Anyway. The consciousness experiment. Yeah, yeah. Well, they basically yeah. found it's out Dean, that nine... It Dean, it's Dean Johns, I believe. Dean Radin is his name. I'm, he's on the West Coast at Noetics. It's the I guy... Dean Johns. I think it's, it's Dean Johns. It's the guys at the, uh, Princeton, I forget. Rogers something or other. Anyway, what? they found out that 9-11 communicated through time. It's random number generator changing capabilities before the event. Right. So would that work in this situation? Uh, be more specific. You well, mean, you mean... To measuring the difference, you know, between the field around a pyramid, for instance, is that going to do something different to the random number generator than... The normal oh, yeah, if you could take a, a random number generator, which, of course, they're the size of, you know, matchboxes now. Yeah. You would probably find very major changes, but no one except you and me have ever thought of doing that. And again, it's funding. So, you know, but they're, they're, they're basically now commercial. I mean, look, tonight there is a commercial version of an atomic clock orbiting the moon in the so-called capstone mission. There's been a proposal on the table for the last couple of months 
that when they, you know, start running Artemis and set up a base and someone's typing, uh, that they put up three uh, atomic clocks around the moon, probably 120 degrees apart, near side and far side, because they, they realize that the moon is hyperdimensionally interacting with their clocks, their watches, their timekeeping systems, and so they need to average these incredibly sensitive timekeeping devices, which, of course, from their physics should not change at all, and from the hyperdimensional physics, of course they're going to change. So I know that they're doing the secret experiment with the Accutron, with the Accutron, with the kind of much more advanced version of an Accutron, which is an atomic watch, but they're not telling us anything that they're finding and the ostensible reason, the excuse for carrying this atomic clock into lunar orbit on the capstone mission is to measure ways to independently verify their position in space so they can communicate with other satellites, with bases on the moon, and with ground antennas on the Earth without having to have Earth-based navigation. That's a great cover story. It will work for that. But what I think they're doing secretly is measuring the hyperdimensional field of the moon, which gets back to the idea, is all that ancient technology and stunning architecture that we now know is there, is some of it still working? And is that what they're trying to measure and hone in on and locate so they can bring it home? Tomorrow night. We'll talk about this in much greater detail tomorrow night. Okay, we've got literally less than a minute. Who wants the last word? Anybody? Gosh, they're all speechless. I've never known this crowd to be speechless. Don't everybody speak at once? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to... I would just like to say a prayer yes. for Carmen Bolter. Uh, our beloved soul sister, we bless you, and please bless our work and our work to bring your work into reality. Here, here. What a wonderful way to end the program. And again, I know, I don't suspect, I don't speculate, I don't theorize, I know that at some level, Robin and Carmen are having a hell of a good time tonight listening to us fumble around and try to do her work appropriate homage and approbation. Because again, Carmen Bolter was one of a kind. And is one of a kind. I want to thank all my guests, Barbara Honiger and Marie Wheatley and Kinthea and Keith Morgan and Tim Saunders and uh, I don't think I'm forgetting anybody. Um, Sam obviously could not make it. We'll find out what happened. We will bring him on in a future program, and he has tons of stories to tell about Carmen and the Bosnian pyramids. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel, where we talk about the Chinese and the moon, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. Carmen, that means you, too. <laughs> <laughs>